I'm not a preacher, and I'm not drunk. I'm just a politician. Everybody, come out of your houses. Clarence Hillian is going to make you a super human being. Welcome to Crackpot Cinema, the 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 last episode of Crackpot Cinema, the 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 series finale, and we're and we're going out with a bang. This is an episode we uh, we had planned uh, before the terrible passing of our captain Mike McPadden. Let's hear it for him. Here's here's to Mike, who we who we lost a couple weeks ago, and we had this episode planned uh, with a. Uh, with, uh, of course, uh, the great Ben Riser. Hi, Ben. Hey, Aaron. Ben, who, uh, you know, was uh, uh, Mike's Mike's buddy for years and years, who Mike roped in to do this for no money or anything. <laughs> what, what did you get? Like a bag of Fritos in the mail once in a while? Or what? what how I did got, he talk I'll you into you- this? I'll tell you what, it things started off fantastic because after the first episode that I helped you with, you sent me a box of fresh baked cookies. Well, which I'm my a good family a, a year later, my family is still talking about those cookies. Oh, that's, <laughs> those that's were great. those were the best. So that was more than enough compensation to <laughs> keep me going. And it wasn't that Mike wrote me, and I, well, I, I'll, I, well, we'll talk about my whole story with Mike uh, during this episode. I'm sure. Well, the point is he bullied you into doing the show. That's the point. And (laughs) then, and so it was supposed to be, so it would have been Ben and Mike sitting here. And then all the way across the pond, Mike had also bullied Cat Ellinger into doing this. Hi, Cat. Hi. Well, not just that, because then he gave my editing to Ben as well, and I didn't send Ben any cookies, so I feel like a <laughs> shit now. God, I love making people feel bad. Oh, God, it's <laughs> I so feel great. awful. Sorry. And he, uh, Kat, you don't you don't owe me anything, and and actually, at some point, Mike also sent me uh, a gigantic for the love of Benji poster like one of those like thing that's almost on on tissue paper but yeah. it's like the size of a the wall of a room um and it's it's an italian so it's whatever the italian is for the love of benji um i i think it's uh, uh for the love of benji i'm pretty that's I, I, i'm not sure but th- that's, that's how it. victor spinetti would say it in uh, <laughs> yes in, in uh Magical mystery tour and and cat and and I'm curious like cat cat is is sitting over there in merry old England and we happen to have two Beatles themed movies was that a was that a British connection or did Mike just or are you a big Beatles fan no, how, how did no. Mike talk you into this one <laughs> no did so he go oh British movies we got to get her basically the way I worked with Mike is he would just appear screaming Katrinka because that's what he called me he renamed everyone which is what I loved about him I was talking to one of his old editors the other day who'd been renamed Juan uh, for no reason and then he'd just go yeah we're gonna do this ah, like like this thing and I just go yeah okay my Great. dad is the Beatles fan I was brought up on the Beatles 
So I'm not like a huge Beatles. Mike was a huge Beatles fan, but I do have an amazing uh, magical mystery tour LSD personal story. So, oh, you know, wow. I was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll wow. come on. Then I can do that. That'll be my country. <laughs> well, that, and, and that is the two movies we're going to talk about are Magical Mystery Tour and uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Um, and uh, and and I, I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, uh, at the roasts at the Comedy Central roast, I, I would work on that Mike loved whenever somebody would pass away. We would always, I, I thought, I thought of how I have to say for Mike w- watching these movies, uh, Mike took the easy way out. That's what we would always say. At the <laughs> That's what Mike did this week. Rather than have to watch these movies. Uh, I think I can honestly say in a month where we lost Mike, there was an insurrection on the U S Capitol and I lost my job. Uh, watching Sergeant Pepper was the worst thing that happened. <laughs> Of, of all those, I, oh, I think I can okay. honestly. Say. No, that's not actually true at all. But, uh, but anyways, um... <laughs> it is. Well, it, you know, it could be true. But you know, Mike actually weighed in on Magical Mystery Tour on I guess the last episode of Crackpot that he recorded with Pat Healy because it came up that that was gonna that that was what was gonna be the next thing. Um, and they t- so they, and they talked about Magical Mystery Tour for a little while, and so you can hear Mike's opinion of Magical oh. Mystery Tour, and he and he, uh, he actually thought Magical Mystery Tour was pretty great. I, That's I great. didn't he didn't talk about Sergeant Pepper. I know that his wife Rachel, uh, who, who we were hoping to have with us today, but she's just not up for it. But um, I know that she actually she has sent me correspondence that makes me think that she actually prefers the Bee Gees. Sergeant Pepper to the original Beatles versions of of those songs. So um, it would have been interesting to hear. I, it. I will tell you this. I think I I can I definitely watched Sergeant Pepper with Mike. I think I probably watched Magical Mystery Tour with him at some point, too. So I'm, I'm pretty sure. And uh, yeah, I I have a good idea of what he would have thought of Sergeant Pepper. But but we'll save that. We'll get to it. We'll <laughs> we'll throw in we'll throw in our thoughts of what he would have said. Um, but yeah, so so this will be our our final uh, tribute podcast to Mike, who we miss and love. And Ben and Cat both hosted great podcasts with him. Uh, as as you folks. I don't know. Maybe you know. Maybe you don't. I never. Are people obsessed with us or not? Does anyone care? <laughs> Tell me, guys. Is anyone listening? What do you think? We. I. I think Cat's got a huge following. Yeah. And, um, not as Mike though. The, the, I mean, God, Mike was just bigger than everything, wasn't he? He yes, just eclipsed oh my God. everything, and just you know all the tributes coming out for him. Just so many people, it's been insane, and it and, and it can only be Mike that has that effect. I think on the world, he was just as, yeah, just as a Beatles episode. I want to say Mike was bigger than Jesus. Yes, <laughs> he'd love that. I want to get banned. <laughs> I want to get our podcast banned by making that controversial statement. But Just what's funny? Don't get assassinated he, um, over that, though. Please use another one. Yeah, it is. It's a bad time to say things like that in the U.S. You're right. But I just this week posted a picture that I 
that I came across that I think my old college roommate found a couple years ago and sent to me. Uh, but I posted it on Facebook. It's a bunch of us in college, including Mike. And we all look like we weigh about 98 pounds combined. There's like four people in the picture. And we all look like we haven't eaten for two years. Um, but Mike's sitting there in shorts and a t-shirt, but he's got, he's holding on to this cabbage patch doll that he has dressed up as Jesus. Like it's got <laughs> the long Jesus hair and just wearing like a, like a loincloth. Uh, and I can't, and I've been asking people, what was the context for that? I, I, I only vaguely remember this this doll that he carried around with him. I don't know what, I don't know where it came from or what it was about, but Mike was not only bigger than Jesus, he was a friend of Jesus or at least cabbage patch Jesus. <laughs> cabbage patch Jesus. Yeah. And, and how amazing since we lost him to see the outpouring of love and, uh, uh online, I mean, really, really amazing. Um, really amazing to see, uh, uh, Danny Peary, the author of the cult movies books, tribute to Mike. I just can't imagine how that, that would have blown Mike's, Mike's mind. Would have exploded. He loved Danny Peary. So <laughs> Mike much. may have died just for that. He may have done it just for that. That's that's the only thing I can think of. Like because that was just so great. Oh my God, he would he would have lost it. He would have lost it. And and just so much uh, so much incredible to see how respected he was and how loved his work was and and how many people, you know, Mike and I talked a lot about like he wanted to make the kind of books that we found when we were 13 that changed our lives. And he did. He did it. Yeah. <laughs> he he yeah. made those kind of he pulled it off. It's incredible. It is it's really incredible. incredible. And then well, he leaves right. us with these two films to talk about. <laughs> That's what we get at the end of it. That's what but we I get. do think that we, that I think that the, I, I, I really feel like the three of us are so lucky to have spent the last 12 months with Mike, doing so much with him and, and uh, helping him achieve these these goals and 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 create these projects that I I really feel like every time I think about it I'm like oh my god he was at the best place of his life um, and yeah. was and had accomplished all this stuff that who could have imagined I'm sure he couldn't have imagined he was going to be able to accomplish and he was just firing on all cylinders and. I just feel so insanely lucky and I never use this word but blessed that that we had this time after all these years to reconnect in such a real and and it just nonstop enjoyable way and the fact that the three of us got to spend so much time with him this past year talking to him about all the stuff that we all loved and appreciated together and to just be able to have those conversations with him and to have them recorded it's it's i know yeah, i've been listening so to him good. a lot yeah it is so good <laughs> Um, we only did ended up doing two episodes of Busted Guts. We had so much plan, but then we got offered all these commentaries, so we were working on those. And um, and our first episode of Busted Guts is basically we were going to talk about three films, and we ended up talking for two hours, just this mad <laughs> circular talk about everything <laughs> that was wrong with the world, and that is out there, like his thoughts on john hughes comedies friends millennials like literally everything we were talking and then we were like hang on a minute we haven't even mentioned the films yet well that would be episode <laughs> two and so oh, that's great th that exists in the world is just such an amazing thing i think 
And, and Kev, we were talking before we got on the call about one of the commentaries you did I just watched, which was for Kino Lorber, the uh, Amazon Women on the Moon Blu-ray, which is, I, is just great. A great Blu-ray all around and a fantastic commentary. He was so that... proud of that one and he actually listened to that one. Um, and he yeah. messaged me and said, I wouldn't normally do this, but I've listened to it and it's actually all right. And because uh, <laughs> he was always really humble, Mike, in the whole commentary film writing thing. There's a lot of dickheads. There seriously are. There's a lot of nasty people, like in any sort of, I guess, showbiz type mm. industry. It attracts a particular type of ego. And so there's a lot of elbows. It's a shark pool. There's all the self-promo and in general people aren't very nice and they get a little taste of it and they become even more dickheads and they're like hey look at me you know i did this commentary for some 40s film and i'm a fucking star i'm awesome wells and it's like <laughs> calm down mike was like the antidote to that he was so humble and just so happy to be doing this stuff he never took a single thing for granted um but then he'd done all this like crazy stuff in his career like working with larry Quinn, and, and he wouldn't do it in a name droppy way he'd just tell you some no, story and you should be like whoa like you know yeah or, or he was like oh the time i walked past andrea dworkin with a check from playboy in my pocket i'm just like what you know <laughs> <laughs> But he oh, just man. was so different to anyone else and just so happy to be doing the stuff, sharing the stuff with all of us. We got to share that with him. And I think that last year was like a total adventure for him. Like He was just so excited about everything we were doing, you guys were doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, like Ben said, he was he was just firing, firing on all the cylinders. You know, we were going to do a book together, like just all this stuff planned. Um, And it's just it's just crazy. I've never met anyone like him in this. I mean, obviously, I've got friends in the industry and that. But just his generosity and his down to like, he's just totally down to earth. And you need that. I think Mm -hmm. he never got to. And and the thing I loved about Mike is was he could always laugh at himself as well. And I really appreciate Mm -hmm. that. In a, and I know it's difficult coming here today and it's like feels really sad. Mike wouldn't want that. He'd want us to take the piss out of him. That's how he'd <laughs> yes. want us to remember him. He'd just be like, what are you doing? Just, you know, don't don't be like that. But, you know, he really had that such an open person in that respect. He'd never take things the wrong way. And you knew you could laugh yeah. at anything. You could laugh at literally anything with him. You could say the most, like, gross thing or whatever. And your little <laughs> tribute you did, Aaron, when you talked about when you two guys met and you took, like, the things me and Mike used to joke about in private. And obviously I know... <laughs> I just yes. think he, he was a blessing. He really was. For the last year, with all the pandemic, things have been really bad in the UK. Just having Mike and his craziness, you know, <laughs> to keep you know, me company. It's so funny. I remember, like, th- th- this memory just popped in my head. Mike and I were obsessed with a movie called Dynamite Chicken. This was a <laughs> this was a movie from like 1972. It was kind of like it was kind of like a, an anthology movie of like hippie freak culture from 72. So so there were clips of uh, 
Al Goldstein from Screw Magazine being interviewed, you know, and then there would be a little weird stand up from Richard Pryor. And then there would be, uh, a you know, a freak out LSD band playing. It was just compilations like that. But I just got a memory in my head, like when you talk about the stuff we would laugh at, there was an image in the movie of a tampon uh, that was uh, uh, painted red, white, and blue, like the American flag. And they they lit it at like a fuse with a sparkler. And it, it just in this like kind of, kind of <laughs> this voice we would do for comedy, I just said to him, well, here it is, ladies and gentlemen, the great American tampon. And I remember he, he literally fell on the floor laughing. Like we, like we probably laughed for 20 minutes straight over the dumbest, you know, just me saying the great American tampon, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, we were crying laughing. Yeah. He was, uh, he was a man. He was a fun guy to hang out with. He was so yeah. funny. I mean, even his film, I loved it when he was angry about stuff. That was the best. <laughs> oh, my God. And I yeah. loved Mandy. And I actually interviewed the director <laughs> as well, right? <laughs> For fucking sight and sound of all places. And he publishes the, the that Mandy review, which is now legendary. Um, and he writes me this thing and he's like, I'm so sorry, Kat. Like, I know you just interviewed Panos Cosmos, but I fucking hated that film. And his review of Mandy is the most joyous outrage I've ever read in my life. He calls Nicolas Cage human trauma, which is just like... <laughs> yeah. oh, you know, and that's it's just so, so funny. funny. He, you know, when he did his old fancy in Happy Land, he... He did a he did that like in the I guess early mid 90s. But by the time I had moved out here in L.A., like more late 90s, he he did. I remember he did a special issue and he went berserk on uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. Like, I fucking hate the Royal Tenenbaums. Which you know, this, I love. I of love, course. I it's love a, it's an incredible film. movie. It's great. And, <laughs> and he hated it. And, uh, and I was Wes, hanging out. He hated out, Wes Anderson in general. Hated Wes Anderson. And I was hanging out with a director who did a movie that Mike liked. The movie was called Poor White Trash from like the late 90s. A, a, a very, very talented director named Mike Addis. And Mike loved this movie. And so when I when I met Mike Edison, I was like, oh, hey, here's uh, here's the, my friend Mike's fanzine. And he was like, oh, this is so cool. And he's looking through it. He's like, oh, he didn't like Royal Tannenbaums? Like, <laughs> he called it a piece of garbage shit. And I was like, yeah, yeah, he hates it. He's like, oh, man. And I told Mike this. And Mike melted down. He was like, why would you show that to him? Yeah. Oh, oh, my God. I can't believe it. He thinks I'm an asshole now. Like, oh, I got to write him. And wrote him like a 2,000-word email. Like, I, I retract my words on Royal Tannenbaums. He was so so mortified. Oh, so well, Mike, funny. Mike was singular in, in so many ways. And I know that's sort of like a thing to say about people, but it's so true with Mike. And one of the ways that Mike wasn't like anybody else I ever knew was that I found myself strongly disagreeing with him about films and music all the time. And yet it never it never affected our relationship or our conversations in a bad way, the way it would with just about everybody else in my life. If, yeah. if, if, if anybody else that I know said the shit that they said about movies <laughs> that I loved, 
you know, it would stick with me and 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 hurt me and make me f- question our friendship. But it never was that with Mike. I remember, and I, I don't know why. I just think it was some kind of magic quality that Mike had, and, and it was the fact that he wasn't going to be offended by your taste in anything and was going to respect the fact that you disagreed with him. But it never, like, it never came to blows like in real life. You know, the way he sort of like uh, you know projected uh, online and in his books um and, and uh you know on the shows but i remember it was 1987 i was at uh, a party in somebody's apartment in manhattan uh, i think it was my roommate um, again my college roommate like uh, uh maybe his girlfriend's apartment and maybe halfway through the party mike walked in and he walked through the door and he had a big announcement to make and he's like i have just seen the Star Wars of my generation, uh, and this was 1987, and he was, so he was, I don't know what, he was, uh, I don't know, he maybe was 18, 17, 19, I don't know, but he, and I said, oh, what is it? He goes, The Untouchables, Brian De Palma's The Untouchables, and he went on this rant about how <laughs> this was the greatest movie he'd ever seen, and people were, it was going to change cinema as we knew it, and you know, it was total craziness. I, I Honestly, I'm a Brian De Palma fan, I think that's maybe my least favorite De Palma film of all time, but um, but that was the kind of thing that Mike would walk in and announce, and it just would, it would be entertaining and fun, and um, and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it was, it was, a, it was a crazy great thing. Yes. And so even though I loved Mandy too, I, I, I loved his, uh, his take on it. And I loved this I... review even more than I love Mandy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was... Yeah. Yeah. And, and although I've seen every stupid Star Wars movie that ever came out and been happy to see them and, uh, you know, uh, I, I loved his hatred of Star Wars and his take on the <laughs> that it ruined, ruined movies for all time. So. Yeah, but then, like, you know, like, it's funny because, you know, I know that was like a big campaign of his online was like, I hate Star Wars. But then when his like 10 year old nephew would mm-hmm. be like, I want to go see the new Star Wars movie, he'd go, great. OK, come on, kid. And he'd take him to the theater and he'd tell me like, yeah, we had a great time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, of course, he was going to take a kid to see the new Star Wars movie. You know, I think that's what it was with him, though, was no matter how like well, when he was really funny, when he was sucking something off. But if you loved it, he still respects that you loved it he just loved that you loved it whilst also slagging it off so you couldn't ever get annoyed with him because he was just so I, I used to actually try, like I love Wes Anderson so I would just trigger him by mentioning Wes Anderson <laughs> yeah. just to wind him up because when he went yeah. that was like you know that's where the magic was and that's when funny. he loved something as well that you'd think why do you fucking love that you know, and it's, it's like, but he just go on and on like like the untouchables. Um, yeah, you know, he used to I get mad at me for liking the Strokes. He got really <laughs> he got really mad about that. That came up a lot. <laughs> but it was great. I think because he was just so passionate about everything, like even in hatred, even in love, it was just pure, and you can't not respect that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and you it. can't. You can't overstate his generousness, his kindness, his humility. I, you know, when I first met him, I was in college. I think I was a sophomore or a junior, and he was two years younger than me, and he, he, he found me. 
he he was he came to the school he started going to the same school that I did but he already knew who I was because he'd heard my name mentioned on the Howard Stern show because my my roommate and I had gotten kicked off of our college radio station because we had we were on the air and we played some dumb prank with the suicide hotline on campus and we're speaking oh, wow. on air to like the suicide hotline on campus and and I think my roommate said uh, you know uh, she, this woman who was who had answered the phone didn't really know if we were actually on the air or anything and uh she asked if everything was okay with us and my roommate said uh well we're if we don't get more listeners we're thinking about killing ourselves and so that sort of triggered some sort of you know standard re- protocol that she had to unleash and anyway like we were the next day we were kicked off the radio and we were also threatened with expulsion from school and uh and then our school newspaper had written an article about it and then my roommate had sent that into howard stern and howard stern apparently read the article or part of it on the air wow and called us stupid dumbasses and was just saying what a bunch of fucking idiots to you know <laughs> nobody can do what i do and these guys are idiots and uh, but mike had heard that and then like a year later, still had it in his head. And, and, and when he got to campus, sought us out. And so he found me and he introduced himself and he became sort of like, you know, for the lack of a better term, like my sidekick. Like he just hung around with me for the rest of the time that I was at school. Um, and we did radio shows together. And, uh, you know, he, he was constantly drawing and writing and, and, and wanting to get involved with film, although he wasn't actually in the film department. Um, and then, you know, he, we were both from Brooklyn. And so even after I graduated and he got, I think he eventually got kicked out of school. I don't think he graduated from SUNY Purchase. But we spent the next couple of years together as friends and I introduced him to all of my friends back in Brooklyn and he wound up living with a few of them including Alan Broadman who we had on the show uh, earlier last year Um, and then in I think 1992 I did something that I've never done with anyone else which is I just cut him out of my life like Mm. my band was playing a show one night and he was there in the audience, uh, heckling us as usual, which was fine. But he said something that really annoyed my uh, then girlfriend, future wife at the time. And and after the show, there were some back and forth words uh, on the street. And then, you know, I just said, okay, I, I got to stop talking to this guy for a while. And he called me the next day to apologize and kept calling me every day for a couple of weeks. And I just did the, again, this thing that I've never done with anyone else. I would hang up on him. I would say, I don't care. I don't, I'm not accepting your apology. I just can't deal with you right now. And then we didn't talk for the next 25 years. Um, and, uh, you know, over the years, he would sometimes, I would hear through other friends who were still in touch with him that he was trying to reach out to me and wanted to make amends. And I would just say to them, he doesn't need to make amends with me. It's fine. I, you know, there's nothing... By then, I had forgotten why I was even really mad at him. And then when I moved to the Midwest, um, I discovered he was in Chicago and found out he was writing for Mr. Skin. And I was like, oh, this is and this is crazy. I don't know why I ever stopped talking to him. And so I reached out to him. I found his email and, and, and wrote to him. And he wrote back. Um, and he was happy to hear from me. But everything was very tentative. And I could totally understand why. Um, And he invited me to the Mr. Skin holiday party that year. And I guess it was probably 2008. Um, And I went and I and I said, "Okay, great. Yeah, I'd love to. So I drove to Chicago and I was so nervous because I felt like our lives had totally 
uh, flipped and that, uh, you know, he had become this, this, what I thought of as a really successful writer, uh, you know, who, who had made a name for himself and was, was doing it, was doing all the stuff that we dreamed about doing in college. And I hadn't done any of that stuff. I was at this time working for Xerox and I was like in charge of a mail room and a, and a, and a print center at, at, at a large corporation. And, uh, you know, I wasn't doing anything creative. I wasn't doing anything with writing. I wasn't doing anything with film. I wasn't doing anything with music. Uh, and I walked into this Mr. Skin party and I was really, really nervous, uh, about seeing Mike again and what it would mean and, uh, you know, how he would be with me. And he couldn't have been any sweeter or kinder and he couldn't have gone out of his way anymore to make me feel at ease and comfortable and not like I was an outsider and not like I was a loser who had sort of squandered all of his talents or whatever while he had gone on to, you know, fame and fortune. Um, and he introduced me to everybody in the office and there were, had to be like a hundred, 200 people there. And they were, they had a big thing every year, you know, because at that point I think they had bought, been bought by Playboy. So there was all this Playboy money and there was, I was just amazed at all the food, the huge spread that there was. And, um, anyway, he introduced me to Jim McBride, to Mr. Skin himself. And during, just during the course of us wandering through, uh, the office complex, and Jim McBride, Mr. Skin, looked at me. He said, Ben Reiser, oh, my God, Mike's been talking about you for years. He told me he stole his entire personality from you, which <laughs> is totally was was absolutely not true. And I don't know if Mike really felt that way. But the fact that that was how he had presented me to Mr. Skin just meant the world to me. I couldn't believe what uh, Mr. Skin was saying. And and it was just always. And then from that point on, it was always like that. He never made me feel anything but uh warm and um just uh just love i mean it was just it was just love and and when i you know and and even after that though you know we'd only talk a couple times a year uh if i'd come into chicago to see a show i would hit him up to sleep on his couch uh, and he and rachel and i would go out to dinner sometimes but um but I really thought, okay, well, you know, he's got his life and I've got mine and it's just never going to be like it was in college. Then he started Crackpot Cinema uh, and I heard the first four episodes, five episodes, and I thought, oh my God, this is the greatest thing. This is so fucking funny. This is so brilliant. I just was so thrilled to be able to listen to these podcasts because they were just the best. And then the fifth podcast came out and it was totally fucked up it, it never sounded good but the fifth one somehow the sync was off and so like the whole thing was like mike and aaron talking over each other and then long silences and then talking over yeah so i i wrote mike an email and i just i said dude i love your podcast and i probably hadn't talked to him in, in over a year at that point uh and i said your podcast is the best thing i've ever heard but it the sound this episode is all fucked up and in general your sound is just a disaster i'm sure you have tons of people in chicago around you that can help you with this um uh i just you know i could if you wanted me to but i'm you know i just wanted to let you know that especially this episode somebody should go fix it if possible and he wrote me back and he said dude i Please do it. I'd be thrilled to do it. We're paying somebody $25 an episode to <laughs> to mix this for us. And I don't think the guy really wants to do it. And uh, 
I would be thrilled if you would do it. And I just was, couldn't have been any happier that he, that he accepted my, my offer. And, uh, and he said, well, we'll pay you. I said, don't, no, you don't have to pay me. And then, but then he, then he wrote me this email saying, listen, I, I want to do a podcast with you. And I just couldn't even believe what I was reading. And he said, I have this idea to do a podcast about growing up in New York in the seventies. And we can talk about all the movies that we saw and talk about what our lives were like and what it was like to see movies in New York in the seventies. And I, I said, I, that sounds great. I my memory is total shit, and I just don't feel comfortable. I don't think I'd be able to do this. He's like, he's like, you would totally do it. Let's try it, and we tried it, and it was a thrill and fun, and 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 that was the thing about Mike. Uh, for me, was that he challenged me and made things exciting for me because I was intimidated by him in the, in this, in these last few years. Uh, and I thought if I'm going to do this with him and if I'm going to talk to him, I really need to bring my a game every time. And I really need to write notes and do research because I'm not at his level with my memory, with my wit, with anything about my presentation. Uh, all I can do is try to keep up with him. And so it was an absolute thrill. And the fact that it seemed successful and that people seem to like it and, and to appreciate our chemistry and to appreciate all the interpersonal stuff that we threw into every podcast and not just talk about the movies and that people dug that like people who didn't know us thought that was cool i just couldn't believe that we were having that kind of success and so boy i, I love mean, that i love that one you did with uh with your sisters uh the ice castles episode was that mm -hmm. the last podcast you guys recorded it was we recorded that was that. so fantastic what a great what a great finale what a great <clears throat> bow to get your sisters in there and and all the and talk about all the stuff about growing up in new york just fantastic i i hope anybody that hasn't listened to that will because that was just so great that was like three days before he died and you know the last the last things that we said to each other like after we recorded that show i texted him and, and said that was that was so much fun. And he texted back saying that was totally great. And then the next day he sent me an email with all the sort of bullet point promo text that he would write for all of our shows for social media and for attaching to the podcast. And he said, you can spruce these up if you want. But of course, as always, they were totally perfect. Yes. And so much funnier than anything I could come up <clears throat> with. And, and then that was it. And then, when, yeah. And then when his sister... His sister sent me, I hadn't, I hadn't mixed our episode yet with, with our sisters and his sister, Katie <clears throat> emailed me and said, can you call me when you have a chance and gave me her phone number. And I, what I, I really thought, I totally thought, I thought, oh, she must've said something on the show that she wants me to cut out before we oh, yeah. publish it. And I almost didn't call her back cause I didn't really want to deal with that. And I was like, oh, okay, fuck it. And I called her and she said, I have terrible news. Uh, my brother passed away today and it just didn't, it couldn't, it didn't register. I thought for sure they have a, he has a younger brother. And I said, you know, she kept talking and talking, but didn't say his name. And I kept thinking she's talking about her other brother. Oh, Maybe yeah. Mike's too broken up yeah. to, to tell me himself. And then I finally said, wait, are you talking about Mike? And she said, yeah. And you know, I don't know. Yeah. I think I just cried for like 48 hours straight. No joke. Um, I looked up the last interaction I had with him. The, I, w I went through my text to go like, oh, what was the last interaction? Because I remembered I had texted him like maybe the night before. I can't remember how. But the last interaction I had with him was 
Uh, he sent me a photo of a chicken that he cooked, a roast chicken. He was like, hey, look, I cooked a chicken. And then uh, I found online, I was like Googling myself, and I found uh, when I was in, well, I wasn't in college. I was in college for a month, and then I dropped out. But I stayed and hung out at the college radio station and did a movie review show called Crypt TV, like Tales from the Crypt, right? And I found the blurb I wrote for it that said, like, punk rock movie reviews, may you never hear Siskel and Ebert again. (laughs) And I I screen capped it and sent it to Mike. I was like, Mike, look at this kill the fathers stuff I was in. (laughs) You know, like, I'm angry at Siskel and Ebert, our idols. And Mike just wrote back, heavy. (laughs) That That was our last interaction. I went back through all our emails, like hundred, like hundreds and hundreds of emails. Wow, we talked on Skype or mess. Like Mike was everywhere when he wanted to speak to you, he'd get hold of you somehow. <laughs> he'd call you, he'd message you. Like there's no escaping it if he needed to tell you something. But I went back through all the old emails and um, I shared one with Ben actually about he'd he'd sent me one when Baby Yoda came out, calling it the Doomsday <laughs> Machine. And he's like, it's all over. It's all finished. He called it a, a Muppet baby for adults. And just so much comfort and joy reading back. Like, he just randomly send these rants. Um, another one, he, there was some new horror film coming out and he'd put <laughs> from the fecal tentacles of Troma. Because he fucking hated Troma. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he, he really hated, did. He had this irrational you know, hatred of Troma for some reason. I mean, he was basically right. <laughs> their, their movies do suck like he's right but it was yes it was a yeah trauma was had to be top the list for him man yeah which is like yeah they're shit but they kind of don't they're like on low on the radar for things that make me angry but the from the fecal tentacles of trauma i think the last thing we talked about was the recording was coming on because we were due to record yeah and it was well, all like, yeah, you all set, yes. And we were trying to work out a date. We were going to record another Busted Guts. Um, and then that was it. And Ben was the one who told me because it got leaked to social media. Mm. And Heather Drain, we should have got on, actually. Heather Drain was starting a podcast. I don't know if you guys know Heather Drain. But she's like... Yes, and I was going to be work, the yeah. I was yeah. going to be the engineer for that for their podcast, too, about Midnight Movies. And I keep forgetting this, and I don't want to forget it, so I'm going to say it here. We were supposed to do this Heather Drain, Midnight Movies, Cult Movies uh, podcast, and we were supposed to do it maybe six months ago, and it just kept getting pushed off, and eventually... Uh, Mike said, let's wait until 2021 to start this. But in the meantime, they had gotten in touch with Alex Cox because their idea about that show was, or at least Mike's idea was that they were going to have it be very guest centric. And so they wanted every episode to have a guest. And Mike had reached out to Alex Cox because I guess they were going to do, I'm not sure if they were going to do Repo Man or Straight to Hell. I think they were going to do Straight to Hell. And so Mike arranged to talked to Alex Cox and and then went and did that just the two of them just Alex and Mike and they had a had a conversation over the phone and they each recorded themselves uh locally and then Mike sent me his half of the conversation and Alex sent me his half of the conversation and Mike said just hold on to this because we're going to incorporate this into the first episode of the podcast we do with Heather uh, wow which never happened but I've got this Mike 
an Alex Cox interview that I need to, I haven't even, I've never listened to it. I need to That's great. That sync it up great. and listen to it and I'd put it out there that. somewhere. Because yeah. they yeah, were all too. set to go. I do a podcast with Heather as well called House Pass. So it's like so much cross-pollination. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And Heather is like, she's like a female Mike in the way that she's like this font of obscure cultural and music knowledge. Um, both of those guys podcasting with them or just talking. They start talking about some band from 1972 that had one single and you're just like like what what is this what planet are you from mm-hmm. and i was so excited to hear those two hook up together oh, yeah and and all the strength because heather's from the south um she's a very polite southern lady uh who happens to like porn and euro trash and weird rock music from the 70s and i was just so looking forward to those two um i feel bad now that we didn't bring heather on really um i know heather's feeling it as well um Aww. and she wrote for mike's book as well the teen movie how book yeah um the other thing actually i wanted to say about that was it is a sexist misogynist industry and mm. if you look at mike's teen movie how book um all of the contributors are female and he mm-hmm. felt very very comfortable in fact and I spoke to his wife, Rachel, about this, more comfortable with women, whereas <laughs> when you get to the old guard, and Mike really was old guard in so many ways, they see women coming along and they're just like, no, 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 we don't we don't want the women in here. And Mike was just like, more women, all the women, all the, I yep. want to hear what the women have got to say. Not in this weird, low-key, sleazy way or because it served him <laughs> in any way. He was right. absolutely, genuinely, he's like, I'm sick of hearing these dudes. This is great. I want to hear what women has got to say about teen movies. You know, what do you mm-hmm. think about them? Do you think they're sexist? You know, and so that whole teen movie how book he made that such a collaboration and was just so supportive to everyone i ended up doing the intro i was going to do an essay and i'd written some big rant on facebook about i don't know john hughes the breakfast club that, that's where our bonding point was we both fucking hated the <laughs> breakfast club <laughs> right and he's like no you've got to do the intro and i was just like, i don't feel worthy to do this but he was mm. just like no do it and write whatever you want and so i did and uh it's one of my favorite pieces i don't generally like my own writing but that because he was just like do whatever you write whatever you want like seriously you know there's so i just wrote this whole massive uh free flow rant really about haze code censorship and how it relates to twitter and it was just nuts um and sent it to him terrified he was going to say this sucks and he was like me and rachel are in the cinema but we've just read your essay no That's great. And I was just like, go and watch the film. But he was so like that with women working with Heather as well. You know, he didn't just want it to be a dude's thing anymore. He thought that other people had other things to offer. Um, and the amount of people I saw in tribute that come out and said, Mike gave me my first paid gig. Mm-hmm. Mike, um, one of the last things he did um that last week is we published a writer Annam Carsten he wrote this huge massive piece on Sam Fuller for us at Diabolique oh, wow. magazine and that was down to Mike 
basically encouraging him setting up the contact just encouraging walking him through it they spent i spoke to adam and he's like i spent so much time on the phone with mike you know and he did that for like hundreds of people i've seen hundreds of people say this so on top of (laughs) all the stuff he did he's like literally walking everyone else through everything else and just so so wonderful such a gift you if you met mike you met 25 other people Absolutely, that's yeah? so true. Because he'd always that's have so to go, like, you've got to meet Aaron, you've got to meet Ben, you've got mm-hmm. to not. And then he tells you, like, oh, you know, this is so amazing. And, <laughs> you know, and he was just so like that. He wanted everyone to connect and everyone to get on. And he would just intro- randomly introduce me to strangers by email because he thought I'd get on with them. Oh, <laughs> so, that's great. Which I loved. He's the, like, oh. the, the last time I saw him in person, he was, when you're talking about teen movie hell, was uh, last year, well, actually 2019 at this point, uh, he, they, they hosted a uh, teen movie festival at a drive-in, this, this famous kind of cult movie drive-in in the woods in Pennsylvania. I wish I could remember the name of it. It's Mahoney. amazing. It's Mahoney. Mahoney. Yeah, that's right. So I, I was just finishing up on a job where, they, where we went to Las Vegas for this like rap party thing. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to fly to Pennsylvania to be with Mike to watch him host this at this, you know, driving in the woods <laughs> where he was just such a superstar to them. And, you know, and uh, came out. The movies were um, the movies that night were oh, it was Revenge of the Nerds and they showed surf to i'm trying to think it was but but anyways it was so fun because we go he introduces the movies he he gives away prizes like i said he was like a total rock star we sat through revenge and the nerds and oh i think it was joysticks that was the other movie but anyways then he introduces the next movie you know and 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 then the movie was about like the movie had gone on for about five minutes and and he said to me like let's get the fuck out of here (laughs) it's like i was like you don't want to stay and watch the movie he's like i don't want to watch this fucking piece of shit again are you let's get the fuck out of here i was like oh okay so we just like snuck out basically and sat in the denny's you know and talked for a couple hours you know so so fun and so great so so speaking of talking about movies let's fulfill mike's wishes and talk about these beatles movies and did you guys did you guys come up with the crackpot cinema rating system puns. No, I'm uh, for terrible. You. Okay, I was very right. stressed about that. I was very stressed. <laughs> I, I came I up don't... with one for each, but I'm Aaron, okay. you're the king of these anyway. So, well, I don't know. I I, I had three. I had uh, beetles or buttholes. Okay. <laughs> nice. uh, Ringo or Stinko, and. Uh, Sergeant Peppers or Surging Poopers. Those those are my three. Nice. What do you got, Ben? I only did I did one for each film, and you know, Magical Mystery Tour already has that Ruddles thing built into it, that Tragical yeah, History yeah. Tour, which just seems you know. But I did Acid Filled Ship Story Bore, um, <laughs> and uh, for Sergeant Pepper. Uh, uh, I wrote this one. I sent this as an email. Um, uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band or Shartgent Crappers Smelly Farts Stunk Bad. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. That's great. Well, I would say let's go with that, but it's too long. I won't yeah. remember it. So, yeah. 
So let's let's. I, I don't connected know. Connected to buttholes on one of the Beatles films. are buttholes. Yeah, Beatles yeah. Buttholes butt was so, definitely for one of the films. Beatles are buttholes. So <laughs> let's start with Magical Mystery Tour. I I'm gonna say, well, I here I'm gonna make a blanket statement. I don't actually think either of these is a good movie technically but i loved watching both of them so i can't help but say beatles for both of them honestly even though (laughs) sergeant pepper in particular is a terrible movie but i so enjoyed but according to the mike mcpadden standard which he always said like he and i used to basically say if you don't turn it off or fall asleep it's a triumph (laughs) so uh so so i gotta say beatles for magical mystery tour how about you guys? What would you rate it? Uh, I to- I totally go Beatles with Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah. Beatles for Magical Mystery Tour. I'm confused about Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> so I'm going to leave be. my rating for now. You should I be. Yeah, cash okay. it out. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. It'll be a Beatles versus Buttholes uh, challenge. And yeah. uh, now, now, Ben, you said you now I, you said you got a summary for Magical Mystery Tour to walk us through. I can't imagine there is a summary. This is oh, this, yes, it's, there is. This is their <laughs> the Beatles notorious stream of consciousness. Sergeant Pepper follow up, follow up to changing the world with the Sergeant Pepper album and then uh, putting out a. TV special at Christmas, I, I believe on the BBC, right? It was a BBC production. Yeah, is that and correct? It, it was, and it it went down like a turd in a swimming pool at the time of its relief. People didn't get it. People just their didn't, first bomb. Yeah, they just yeah. didn't get it. Um, yeah, it went. It was broadcast on Boxing Day, right? Which is the day after Christmas. I think right? so, but I don't. I what is so, Boxing Day, Cat? We don't know <laughs> about don't it. Please, Americans always ask me this. <laughs> don't you have Boxing Day? Like Mike no. was obsessed with the concept of Boxing Day, like yeah. like it was some weird exotic thing. So but, <laughs> it is. So traditionally, it comes from the day after Christmas. People would go to church and they would give to charity, like in a box. But what it means today is. Uh, Boxing Day is always my favourite part of Christmas. You don't get drashed. You slob around and watch watch movies all day, uh, yeah. surrounded by. You don't clean the house and you just eat leftovers. So that's like basically that. Boxing Day. It's so just we, like a very so we late... do celebrate Boxing Day. My family celebrated Boxing Day this year then because that's you what don't we did call for it that. four you days have, after Christmas. You have to give it that name and then it's like, well, it's Boxing Day and everyone understands. It's, so it's okay. It's an official excuse. Yeah. <laughs> that's well, great. And but Magical yeah. Mystery Tour then is the perfect Boxing Day movie because it feels like it's a bunch of just leftovers and um, you know, odds and ends <laughs> made by that slobs. That's harsh. And, and you That's know, harsh. <laughs> and you know, Mike and I, mean, I used to celebrate. It doesn't mean it's not tasty. It's delicious. It's just a mess. <laughs> Mike and I used to celebrate Hustler Day, and we, we really did this for years. <laughs> uh, when when we worked at Hustler Magazine, when you got your calendar of holidays, days off for the year, it would say, you know, we get off. But President's Day, Christmas, these four days, Thanksgiving Day, you got off Thanksgiving Day. But then the Friday immediately after Thanksgiving was deemed Hustler Day. It officially said that on the calendar. <laughs> so so that's something everyone out there can celebrate. The the day after Thanksgiving is Hustler Day. That's absolutely official. So we don't and while get we're speaking, we don't get Thanksgiving though. We well, we I can mean, explain I don't to you get. You, you know what? You do get Hustler Day. I grant it to you. I grant it to the people share. of England. I give you Hustler Day. 
But Hustler Day reminds me of, I wanted to sh- give a shout out to the episode of Crackpot that you guys did with Alan McDonnell. Yeah, that was recounted fun. a bunch boss. of your, of the best Hustler Days stories and some other stories too. <laughs> if you, if people are looking for, for some of the best Mike anecdotes that I've <laughs> yes. heard on air. Yeah, there's that, some good that, ones there. There's some yeah. good ones there. There's a Jane yeah, Fonda and Ted Turner thing, that, which is that, that story is incredible. Yes. <laughs> That is a must here. But but yeah, this was the Beatles' first first big misstep. The first thing that critics and I, I gotta say, as much as and yes, the and I when when I rewatched this, I was surprised. I hadn't seen it in years, but watching it, I was surprised. I was like, oh, I think I've probably seen this 50 times. Uh, like, I don't like it's not a movie. I remember, I don't know why I've seen it 50 times. I am a giant Beatles fan, but almost every shot was like imprinted on my brain. So, so as much as it is like very kind of formless and stream of consciousness, it, it is, it is effective. I mean, it is a, it is a cool, it is a cool drug trip of a movie. And as much as it was considered the big disappointment and got these terrible reviews and, and it's always pointed to as, um, Oh, Brian Epstein had just passed away and that they were so aimless and floundering at that moment. And this is the product of it. It's some of my absolutely favorite Beatles songs. No question. I mean, Strawberry Fields, I'm the Walrus, Penny Lane, Hello, Goodbye, Your Mothership. The soundtrack kicks ass. It just rocks. And especially, of course, Magical Mystery Tour, the song itself is one of the most rocking songs they ever did. So so it was it was fun to watch. And if nothing else, there's all those things that you just mentioned are these proto in in watching the film. There are these proto music videos. I mean, they they anticipated the music video. Note of this was this the first? It was this the first one when they used concept with because we have pop musical films before that. Obviously, Elvis, The Beatles, Hard Day's Night. Um, but it's performances within the film. Is this the first... I, I kind of had a little look online and where they actually just have more like a music video concept. I mean, in, you can really... It's the whole music video concept. It's interesting. Around in the early 60s, there's... um. I think they're called scopatones. Have you ever heard of that? No. I, I think it's scopatones. Yeah. The, the scope. So, um, in the early '60s, they they did an experiment where they tried to make what was essentially a video jukebox that they put in diners and and uh, and so so you were and it would be like a little eight millimeter reel of film. And it would be a song like Neil Sedaka's Calendar Girl is one I remember seeing. So there's Neil Sedaka singing his kind of corny Calendar Girl song and a, and a girls come out dressed for each month of the year. And it's like one locked off shot. And you would basically put a quarter in and rather than hear a song play in the jukebox, you'd be looking in like an old... Uh, uh oh god what do you call that crank god as a movie <laughs> podcast nerd i should know that not zoetrope you know the old timey uh, look in the steenbeck flat flatbed oh no 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 you're talking about no you're talking i'm talking about, about the god damn it what is it called you look in and you crank it, it is like a and zoetrope. there's there yeah it's and there's uh there's the man in the handlebar mustache sneezing or you know <laughs> yeah. there's the the trinket but anyways it was the equivalent of that but 
when you say yes, in, in a lot of ways, in terms of what music videos became, I mean, it all it comes all comes from Hard Day's Night. It all comes from Richard Lester doing Can't Buy Me Love and having them just do that exuberant run through the soccer field and goofing around and, and doing lots of fun edits. Really, I mean, Hard Day's Night really is the birth of it. And this is this like we're just going to do that for an hour now, you know? Yeah. So although Hard, also, Hard Day's Night did have a kind of a story, though, to- much more so than this. And, and, yes, but it would break. Yes. But there are a couple times where it breaks out into you're right. Cap, a lot of that are performances, even if, even when they're on the train or they're in a warehouse. But they're but they're just sort of in the one location and they've got their instruments. But there's a couple times. And then in Help, even more so, there's some music yeah. stuff where it's just where it's mm-hmm. them doing those sort of, you know, making goofy uh, figures with their bodies and running around fields and, and, and stuff like that. But then it's, it's, it's taken to, I think it's most extreme form in magical mystery tour where, you know, fool on the hill is basically just Paul McCartney on acid. Being the fool on the hill. <laughs> Tripping balls. I, I, I'm yeah. going to talk about my acid story here while we're yes. on the Oh yeah, please. Oh, so my it. dad is a huge Beatles fan. As I said at the beginning, um, he saw them several times at the height of their fame. He was in their fan club. Um, my dad's oh my a musician. Um, so music was big in our house. And the Beatles were just, you know, very much part of our family life. So I do. I love Sgt. Peppers. My dad thinks it's not a very good album. We actually had a mm. weird uh, discussion argument about that randomly a couple of weeks ago. Why do wow. I think it's the best one? I should listen to Revolver, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's in his 70s now. Um, mm-hmm. So it was constantly on. Hard Day's Night, I have very, very early memories of seeing that on TV. Uh, maybe at Christmas because I remember I was playing with a Paddington Bear set, and um, and I don't remember when I saw Magical Mystery, but I was still a kid, and obviously my dad had all the vinyls, so I knew the costume like the walrus costumes and everything. Um, we weren't allowed to touch them ever; just sort of look at them from, from afar. Um, and so I must have seen it as a kid, and I must have been quite young. But in 1989, when I was 15, one Christmas, uh, a friend of mine, me and my friend Dave, dropped a shitload of acid. Um, and we had this weirdest trip where we basically come from a very small town called Cheltenham. And our whole trip was walking into the town centre. This sounds really boring, but it, well, it kind of was. Uh, into the town centre, back out of the town centre, like walking down this very long main road that's about four miles long walking to the end coming back um my trip my entire fucking trip (laughs) and and this when you said it parts of it get ingrained Mm -hmm. was double decker buses would appear out of nowhere wow with crowds of people and all these people would get off and the bus would drive away this was like my entire fucking trip was this (laughs) wow right and the woman who got off the bus was the bloody Aunt Jessie. The Jessie. The, the uh, Ringo's aunt. Jessie Robbins. Actress yeah. Jessie Robbins. It was her. My whole trip. You, five you... hours. Every bus, she'd be on it. And oh, I... <laughs> that was... Oh, God, that's great. And 
don't yeah. know why. Because I oh hadn't seen the film recently. I hadn't like. <laughs> that's how it had gone. Well, she is head. unforgettable. Yeah. She she is really unforgettable. <laughs> yeah, like she's such an amazing character. That's great. That's the best acid trip ever. <laughs> it was. My, it uh, wasn't. <laughs> did you did you have flashbacks watching this? Did you have flashbacks? Watching no, but this I did realize that parts of it are quite grotesque, and I yeah. do remember feeling frightened in the eating scene. So I don't know if that's how yeah. it got embedded because I was it, must have been five, six years old maybe right. when I saw that film. Well, um, that's enough to turn you off spaghetti for the rest of your life. Yeah. Although I want to say, I know it's always described in print. Uh, as spaghetti, but that doesn't look anything like spaghetti. No, it's not. That was the pasta. other thing I realized. Yeah. This doesn't look like spaghetti, <laughs> but for some reason I thought it was spaghetti. But it, but it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's gross. It's, it's, it's officially yeah. spaghetti, gross. but it's not spaghetti. No, it's yeah. gross. It's. It, it, I also grew up with a Beatles obsessed father, and and I was obsessed with the Magical Mystery Tour LP because it it was a, it opened yeah. like a gatefold, and then yeah. it had the color pages in it with the comic the comic book of them as the wizards on their tour and i remember the picture in there of her with spaghetti getting shoveled on onto her being obsessed and disgusted by that as a kid too so yeah but the little yeah, closer on on the on the burst the close-ups of their face like parts of it are really like a bad trip so it's i thought this explains it this is why this is the thing that stuck in my head because it yeah. wasn't a nice thing that she was getting off this bus it was just like why the fuck does this keep happening? I don't like this. Um, yeah. My friend, totally oblivious to that, was seeing other nicer things. And I was just like, these fucking buses, man. He's like, what are you on about? And I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> well, the, and- the movie opens, basically, well, with first with this narrator, who to me sounds like John Lennon, but I don't know that he's actually credited as being the voiceover narration. I think it is John. I think that's correct. Signs out yeah. John Lennon. Yeah. But the first the first note that I took about the uh, as I was watching it was that Ringo is doing improv with his aunt Jessie. Yes. Um, but they don't Everybody's seem to... Everybody's doing improv. Right. But in particular, Ringo and his aunt don't seem to have learned the yes and principle of improv mm-hmm. because they're really yeah. just sort of ending yeah, their conversation over and over again. So it's like, no, no, <laughs> you know... They don't. They doesn't go anywhere. That improv. Yeah. I wanted. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to get your guys' reaction because some of this is really in, English. So the coach trip. Oh yeah. The whole yeah. notion of getting on a coach with these uh, just strangers and go. That's like a really working class British thing. Like it's a weird thing. It's horrible. It's sadistic, and yet we used to do it every summer. We get on a coach with thirty other horrible people occasionally there'd be a sing-along you're stuck on there with these annoying people we go off to the beach um and i wanted to get your reaction to that because i don't think there's like an america you get into cadillacs and you drive off into the desert and shade you know (laughs) made no sense to me never made any sense to me as a as a child like you see oh it's the beatles magical mystery tour so in my head like it must be this movie with like the bus is like 
a cartoon that floats into space and they and it, they go to a Lord of the Rings. And then you see it's like the bored people, thing, which I, I've got to assume is part of the joke almost. Yeah, no, like, it is. That is part right. of the joke. It's, it's, but it's also it, supposed to be inspired by that Ken Kesey. And, and, and so that is an yes. American thing, like where right, he would but it's, do like a psychedelic version of those British motor But toys. it's so not. But That's the so funny thing. Like it's kind of yeah, quaint and English. And, and just weirdly mundane in part. The closest but, American equivalent that I know of is is I all my relatives, older relatives in Brooklyn and other people, they would uh, they would gather around uh, one of those buses and and take it that the bus would take them from Brooklyn to Atlantic City so they could go gambling at casinos. So that that was the motor coach tour was the, <laughs> just from Brooklyn to Atlantic City just so you could go gambling. There was no there were no beach although there was a there is a beautiful beach in Atlantic City but nobody would ever bother doing it, anything there. Yeah, it so it's a weird me of, concept. It, it's got it, 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 it's just like like you said you, you think it's going to be this amazing thing and it's like they're going to the fucking seaside or what are they doing like what is this right and goofing around it, it does remind me of what uh lemmy from i remember lemmy from motorhead i remember an interview with him where he said he said the key to understanding the beatles was that the Rolling Stones, I, it blew my mind that this was Lemmy saying this. The Rolling Stones were supposed to be the tough street guys, but they were art school kids. Yes. He was like the <laughs> Beatles who were the, we're tripping out, we're, they were the street kids. Yes. They were the ones who had actually gotten in fights and shit and were working class. And so, and so, and he always said that was the key to understanding them. And, and so it makes sense, Kat, you saying that's this banal part. Of of growing up British, that they're, I guess, kind of in a way sending. They're making fun of. It's they're, weirdly, they're it's weirdly subversive because they never ever detach from their working class roots, um, and class here in Britain is very connected to heritage. Like you could become a millionaire and you'd still be working class you'd still be judged into it's all to do with where you went to school who your parents mm-hmm. are like there's no escape in it um and before the beatles and that generation like the 60s michael kane was the actor that probably did it as well um before that the working class were very um, and there's a great Michael Caine do- uh, documentary, not to go too much on a tangent, but Ooh. My Generation, where he explains okay. all this from his point of view, um, where class was just very... The, after the war, the working classes were supposed to just keep calm and carry on. And you had this kind of cultural rebellion, especially in young men. They're like, we we don't want this life anymore. Right. Um, and it started to change in the media through the British New Wave in film and then through actors like Michael Caine and through the Beatles. So Hard Day's Night, and this is why my dad loves them because he's got a huge class chip and he hates the middle classes. Mm-hmm. Um Hard Day's Night is very much about this conception of the Beatles as these sort of cool working class. And all of a sudden in the 60s, it was cool to be working class. By the time it got to Thatcher, it was like, fuck you if you're working class. Right. That is the worst thing you can be. But for that right. little thing, so it's almost like they put all these uh, these weird little traditions into that film. The, the variety show is like a working man's club show. Uh, the, there's the scene in it where they're at a fate, what with these weird little uh, family events that we'd have. And it's playing, I think. Is it playing? It's playing 
I wrote a note. It's playing one of their older songs, but like as if it's at some twee little um, yes thing. And the racing, that's like a sports day sort there's of thing a, that we have here. There isn't. There's a, there's weird. an accordion version. An accordion version of All You Need Is Love, and maybe that's all what you need is love. Of. Yeah, I think it's yeah. that right. Um, and I heard that in this, and you know what it reminded me of was the last episode of The Prisoner. Where they use "All You Need Is Love," uh, mm. while Patrick uh, McGowan, McGee. Yeah, McGowan? I love the person. I've, I've that, been to that, the that, village well, and everything. Yeah, and that final episode of of the prisoner and the climax plays out over the Beatles or under the Beatles. All you need is love. That was like the most mind blowing mind fuck mm-hmm. for me for a long time. Well, they were they were huge. Ended. They were so big, and so for the film to, or I don't even know if you could call it a feature film. It's only an hour long, but for mm. it to flop, I think had it been a couple of years later, people would have been ready for it because we are Python by then, and it's really proto Python. Right. Um, did um, you did you read that the Pythons loved it? That yes. no, I didn't read to, that. Yeah, I yeah. Just, apparently, like you know, it came out, it flopped, it went away, and then when the Pythons did. When they released uh, Monty Python, the Holy Grail, they apparently by that point, they'd become friends with George Harrison. So they went to him and they said, will you basically get that out of your vault so we can watch it? Uh... And we want to and they wanted to use it as like a double feature with Holy Grail, basically. Like that would be the opening film you see. Yeah, yeah. it is so proto Python. I mean, we had precedent for that. I don't know if you guys know the goons. The goons. Yeah, Yeah. it's post the goons, but kind of very Python. anarchic sort of surrealist humor which is so un-british because it's just totally unrestrained and weird like we're all like our oppression has to come out some way but it but it's that's so funny because we now think of that as totally british like yeah but that was monty python the goons that's the that's british humor for us that was like you know, anarchy. If you look at this, the tra- our traditional comedy, it's like musical stuff. It's like George fucking Formby and Norman Wisdom. It's all very... Well, th- but actually, th- I'm so glad we get to talk to you about this, Kat, because in me r- looking up the credits for the cast members who, 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 like I said, they're imprinted on my brain, but other than Victor Spinetti, none of them are any actors that I go like, oh, I remember seeing them in this film or that film. But uh, but they're all British TV comedy actors of the period. They're all in sitcoms. Yeah, they're uh, they're all so. So it is funny that this was very much almost more like the equivalent of like a Sonny and Cher or Donnie and Marie special from the yeah. 70s the thing of like, is let's just though, get all the TV actors the together. The thing is, though, the, a lot of those actors aren't actually massive actors, though. They're not iconic actors. They really are, you know, not to be disrespectful, but whereas in Hard Night, Day's Night, they got Wilfred Bramble. He's like a fucking legend, his old steptoe. Right. Um, and it's weird. It's almost like, it's, it's just so weird. The casting is weird. You don't really get any sort of big cameos in it that you would expect like the Beatles at that point you would have thought people were clamoring to work with them but it's very low-key in that way 
But I think one thing that one it, one thing that we shouldn't gloss over though in, in talking about this as a flop and people not liking it when when it was first shown on TV is that it was shown in black and white even though yeah. it was shot in color. You know, we and didn't so have it looked, color TVs though. There right, was no right, point exactly. wasting right. the money. <laughs> yeah, right. No, but so it looked like shit, and you didn't. You you know, I think if you watch this in black and white, you're missing out on two thirds yeah. of what's cool about it, and and also it must have sounded like shit on those old TVs too so you know it's one thing if it had been released into theaters and been a flop it's another thing to like say yeah okay a black and white tin can sounding version of this on tv i can see why people were like what is this shit but in terms of it bombing you're you're also making me wonder if can't you talking about the working class side of it and it almost being this parody and that's such a good point that they could have had they could have had Mick Jagger in this. Yeah. They could have gotten they could have gotten the biggest stars in the world. They could have gotten movie stars in it. But they went for weird little a guy who was on Benny Hill. Yeah. You know, playing the vagrant. And I wonder if I wonder if part of it bombing I wonder if it was uh I guess I guess uh in uh, British slang you would say taking the piss, right? Like I do I wonder think if, it's some sort I, I wonder of weird if it was joke. I wonder if people hated it for that reason too. Like I wonder if it was just too basically kind of sarcastic and why are the Beatles making fun of us and kind of fucking around it is- and deliberately doing this uh, kind of sarcastic, ironic. This kind of ironic thing. I Do wonder you know if our Carry On films and things like that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so it seemed, and I, one of the, my regrets about Mike is I was going to introduce him to Carry On films because I really wanted to know what he'd make of them. They are a strange cultural phenomenon. I love them because I grew up on them, but it is almost like they take these elements of a Carry On film. And they have these actors that are associated not with Carry On, but with TV and that sort of smaller side of it. And um, and they almost parody that and then stick a few songs in. And then, it, and then it's got the weird psychedelic elements, which again, if you look at British film around that time, um, towards the end of the 60s, there's some experimental stuff like Wonderwall, the bed sitting room. So it's kind of mm-hmm. veering towards that. But it's also got this very strange, um, very mundane, almost like working class. Size. It's, it's not got the pretensions for an art film. And that has to be deliberate. Like you said, they could have had anyone and they were the Beatles right. at that point, you know, hugely so they could have had anyone in that film. And right. it's you- like... Yeah, what the what the hell? What the hell? With the- you just brought another movie to mind that re- uh, I was obsessed with for years. I saw it as a kid. I must have been like nine or ten years old. This is when I still lived in upstate New York. So I was watching the New York stations, WPIX. And, and one day I was home from school and a British movie came on, I think from like 69 or 70, starring David Warner uh, called Work is a Four-Letter Word. Do you know yes, that film? I do. And, and, and that's one of those when you say it's all set in factories and it's all grim and dingy, but they're making psychedelic mushrooms in the factories. So it's all like British factory workers tripping out. And, and I, I saw this as a kid and was like, 
couldn't couldn't find it for years could never find anything about it i I finally found it on youtube like a year or two ago it it took forever i don't think there's ever been a really good release over here of it but but yeah it seems like that yes that was its own genre at the time yeah it lasted about two years but again this comes just before that shift really we start the decade with like the new wave kitchen sink um realism and all that sort of stuff and then by the end of the decade, we're getting to things like Joanna and Wonderwall, Girl on the Motorcycle. Right. It's slightly experimental. Bed sitting rooms, bonkers, mine. That that. Yeah, that's to... great. I just got the Blu-ray of that last year. I think it's, it's that was wonderful. Really... But it wasn't yeah, really a huge great. thing because the British are, especially the working class, Oof. is very conservative. We like carry-on films and innuendo in this very kind of safe humour. And so the more surrealist stuff like Python, the goons, that felt like fucking anarchy. That, especially Python was just like so different, so like aggressively surreal um, mm-hmm. that it just ripped everything up. And I think had this film come along, say, two years later... Because um, Python did a lot of their everyday life stuff and they'd stick something completely weird in some very mundane sure. scenario. I think audiences would have been more primed for it. But at the time, imagine Boxing Day with your nan, you're eating the bubble and squeak and having a cup of tea and that comes on TV. And you're just like, what the what the fuck is these people eating this mashed pasta? And you know, what yeah. is this? <laughs> and the well, and, you know, and the infamous scene in Meaning of Life is really just the logical extension and conclusion of the spaghetti scene in Magic That's a great Mystery point. Tour. Yeah, no, you know, the more we talk about it, the more my uh, estimation of Magical Mystery Tour is improving. <laughs> for for you're right, being very ahead of its time and. Uh, inspiring a lot of that stuff i'm sure where did where did bedazzled fit into this good oh i love that film was that like 70 was that 69 or 70 bedazzled was no it was early it was either 66 or 68 wow okay all right so that's part of this yeah that's part of that and that is just so wonderful oh my god that's another one i saw as a kid (laughs) that was life-changing i just loved it like just particularly him performing Love Me followed by Peter Cook doing the Bedazzled song, I remember. <laughs> Completely blew my mind as a kid. Yeah. But you know what scared the hell out of me as a kid when I remembered watching this is the I Am The Walrus number, in the, which is a huge highlight, obviously, of Magical Mystery Tour. But God, did that creep me out as a kid, and I hated hearing that song. And it, it just the whole thing was just queasy and disturbing to me. And why are they wearing these gross masks? And what's wrong well, with them? Like and then, something out of a fucking folk horror it's like the wicker man when they it's get midsummer <laughs> yeah it's yeah, like, midsummer. Yeah. It's like, yeah it's the magical midsummer tour. It's, it's, it's well like and there's that very there's that very midsummer's night's dream um bottom thing that happens when that uh little person comes out from behind the camera he's got an old-fashioned camera and he comes out and he's wearing uh i don't know what it is like a wolf mask or a donkey mask and it <laughs> feels like it's right out of midsummer night's dream um so yeah, there's all kinds of weird shit that goes on with costumes and masks and animal. But that symbolism. was basically what they did, though, wasn't it? And then they just turn up and say, "We'll just see what happens." Yeah, yeah and then, <laughs> I then took loads yeah. of drugs and thought no this script. was great. <laughs> it, yeah, and then and then I guess I'm also realizing in terms of the comedy ties, which I think is so fascinating with the Beatles. Then you've got Neil Innes in here with a Bonzo. 
Bonzo dude. What are they? The Bonzo dog doodah band doing what? Which then he goes on to do the Ruddles with Eric Idle. Yeah. So so yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, uh, what comedy became. You can really tie to this movie. I do in, think well, it was a lot more influential than it gets. Yeah, credit, no, that makes sense. For. Looking it back at it as a kid, I think between this. And Pink Floyd's The Fucking Wall. <laughs> Those two things, because I was coming of age sort of late 70s, early 80s, the the We Don't Need No Education video and oh, the thought of Jesse Robbins and a pastor which is I was a very sensitive child and that between those two sort of oh, introduced God. me to this very strange sinister world in everyday oh. life in Britain um, and kind of terrifying as well but watching it back after so many because I never watched it again especially after that acid trip I never watched it again yeah. um, but I'd say I'll watch it for Mike because I can't watch it for you and I really enjoyed it and I thought this is really yeah. ahead of its time um, it, I can see how this obviously influenced things that came after it and it's just kind of sad that it wasn't appreciated, but then it wouldn't be ahead of its time if it was appreciated, would it? So, well, right. I have to say, what the the Ruddles special too is something I watched a hundred times through my teenage years, and I, it was just obsessed with. And and one of the best gags in it is the parody of this, which is the tragical history tour, which is instead of the the Beatles <laughs> yes. being wizards, the Ruddles are historians <laughs> who take a super boring bus. The whole joke is that everyone's just sitting on the bus looking depressed and bored. It's the perfect parody. And, uh, oh, it's just so great. It's the sort of thing my dad finds fucking hilarious. Oh, my God. Oh, me too. I tried to show it to my kids. I I sat them down uh, like a year ago. I was like, get ready to laugh as hard as you ever (laughs) I was your age when I saw this. And after 10 minutes, they were like, please turn this off. Please. I can't. They could not sit through the ruddles. So. Philistines, Philistines. Um, well, uh, let's let's move on. And 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 I, uh, like, we never got to your summary, Ben. But like I said, like it's. it's oh, can I just before we move on, shout out to Buster Blood Vessel as well. Yes, you guys I was about know to do the Bad Manners. <laughs> we have yes. to, don't we? Um, yes. The eighties skin scar phenomenon. Um, <laughs> where the front man of of them took his name from that film, so influential in the scar scene as well. And he apparently was a very that actor Ivor Cutler. I guess was like the equivalent of like our beat beat poets over here. Is that correct? I don't like really know. Kind of no, a, I'm not that much familiar with him. Really, his character I, I think, is insane. Though it's like he just turns up on the bus and acts like the conductor when he's not. <laughs> Weird. Always, again, always creep me out as a kid. Yeah, like, why? Oh, this guy's just here. We just let him on. This lunatic. Yeah, I think think apparently that Ivor Cutler was like this very eccentric kind of scenester, poet, comic, performance artist uh, guy. Yeah. Which, and you know, and that's, that's always been a fascinating thing to me is that Paul... As much as John was musically the experimental one, the revolution number nine, Strawberry Fields Forever guy, Paul was the one, this movie was Paul's idea, Mm -hmm. and Paul was the one, they were all married, Paul was single at the time, he was the one that was running around London's art scene, dropping acid with people, and doing shit like 
he he said like uh in a drum circle banging on a radiator for six <laughs> hours you know like he was really the one bringing in these weird arty influences and and meeting these scenester people like this ivor cutler and you know so i think it's a reflection of that as well yeah let me just give a shout out to a couple other weird moments in this movie there's the thing where john lennon asks a little girl who's sitting on his lap and he says, do you want to blow it? Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. That hasn't aged well. Yeah. Um, weird. <laughs> there's a great, there's that great thing where George is sitting on the ground playing Blue Jay Way on a chalk keyboard on in the concrete uh, because he's got two wives and a kid to support. Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, that that guy who is uh, who is titled the magical mystery boy, who kind of seems to me like the gimp in Pulp Fiction, like a, he's got magical <laughs> yes. mystery yes. boy written on his chest, and very strange. And then this one fantastic shot of Lennon. He's outside, sort of on like a, he's standing on top of a like a, a brick wall or something in the on the hillside, and he's got a stand up bass, I think, or a viola with a bow, and he looks. He, it looks like he's in Nosferatu, like the original Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. It's the weirdest. He looks like Renfield. It's, uh, I don't know if the film is sped up or whatever, but it's genuinely eerie. And then when they're in that movie theater with that magical mystery boy and Lennon is on a rocking horse, that just seems like total David Lynch territory. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, way ahead of its time. Um, oh, and it's cool that you get the scene, the cabaret kind of scene at, what's his name? Paul Raymond? Was it Paul Raymond's r- review bar? Uh, yeah, they, they, which they is shot a strip club. Famous club. The famous this movie, yes. club. This movie winds up, this TV movie, this TV Christmas movie, its climax is in a strip club. Yeah. <laughs> very, very interesting. And Mike I'm and telling I you, they were, about, they were totally taking the piss with this. Yeah. And Mike and I talked about Paul Raymond on one of our, I think on our first Crackpot Cinema episode, we reviewed the biopic that Steve Coogan made, The Look of Love, about Paul Raymond and talked about that. So that was fun to see actual footage of the Raymond review bar. That was very cool. Very cool. All right. So so uh, so let's move on to an even more mind blowing trip of a movie. Good Uh, grief. Even (laughs) Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Another movie. That I have to say, I've seen 55 times, also remembered every shot because it was a a real staple of early uh, Showtime cable channel days. And as a Beatles obsessed kid, I'd watch it every time it was on. And it's like I said, it's terrible. I have to rate it Beatles, not buttholes, because I did enjoy watching (laughs) it so much. But God, is it bad. And and it's so bad. it, It was my first watch. I'd never seen it. Um, and I, I messaged Ben earlier and I was just like, I don't know if this is the worst thing I've ever seen or like what, <laughs> I, I kind of want to give it a butt hole, but I don't, it's the fact they've Americanized it so it's much. Insane. It's like, oh it's my insane. God, this is sacrilege. It's all in like Heartland. Complete... It's set in Heartland, <laughs> USA. That's the name of the, the town. It's like Little place. Abner on acid, basically, <laughs> with bits well, of Phantom of the Paradise sort of cut into it. It's just like, the hell, this is... Yes. Well, it's more it's... like if you made a Little Abner movie, but set it in, in Liverpool. <laughs> like, why, what are you doing? Like, yeah, this there, was a there, terrible miscalculation. There's a moment where this guy bikes into town with this oversized telegram that he's going to deliver and I thought this movie feels like Mel Brooks' silent movie crossed with uh, <laughs> Lars von Trier's Dogville 
Um, and that just seems it, yes. it, the, the, I think the, I think one of the big problems with the movie is that it's doing two opposite things at once all the time where it's it's this craven ploy to try to tap into uh, the pop superstars of the moment in the in the mid 70s and the, the dawn of disco and the Bee Gees at the height of their powers and 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 uh, Peter Frampton all that shit so like desperately trying to tap into the youth market of the 70s and like dynamite magazine and scholastic you know but and not not just not teenagers a- but preteens but at the same time it takes all these Beatles songs which were totally cool and 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 ups the schmaltz factor on all of them and turns them into versions that are much more music hall sounding like uh you know pre-rock versions which a lot of paul mccartney songs do sound like if you turn if you make other arrangements if you give them old-fashioned arrangements and if you have george fucking burns singing uh you know <laughs> fixing a hole like yes it's gonna sound like fucking vaudeville and so it's this bizarre thing where they're like we're trying to appeal to teenagers and preteens but we're oh. doing it by trying it's, to turn the Beatles into a fucking vaudeville music hall act. And, and Americanizing the whole thing is just so American. Like, Justine, it's so opposite to the beat, so opposite to Magical Mystery Tour, like with the non famous people. Yeah. Um, and my first notes are weirdly Americanized. And then I've just got the fucking Bee Gees question mark, Peter fucking Frampton question mark. Uh, and then I've got George f- fucking Burns, <laughs> Donald Pleasant's question mark, Donald's wig. Like, that was basically my... Every second of the film. Yes. I, I kind of yeah. hated that, but, but loved it at the same time. Yes, you can't look away. <laughs> you, you cannot look away. So, and, and so to... So to to set up the movie a little bit, it came out in 1979. You you had had other um, kind of rock opera movies of the decade, like Tommy, uh, Ken Russell's Tommy movie that were, okay, we're going to take this album and just act it out in a, in a kind of proto music video way. Um, this was uh, a... Um, Mike and I were always obsessed with this movie as an example of the shit people would sit through in the 70s because they were high and they didn't have phones yet. <laughs> and like, 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 can you imagine sitting through an hour and 40 minutes of this in a theater? Like, it's amazing what people would accept. But, but he and I were also obsessed with another movie uh, that came out in 1976 we called All This and World War II. And that movie was World War II. So bizarre. This got a theat- major theatrical release. Um, World War II battle footage, black and white aerial battle footage, stuff like that, cut together two Beatles covers to a soundtrack of covers of Beatles songs by the artists of the time. Peter Gabriel, Elton John, uh, an Elton John track. I think he does Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds with John Lennon actually playing on it. The Brothers Johnsons and the Bee Gees. And the movie was a flop, but the soundtrack was this huge hit. It was it was this it was this really big hit. Um, So that at the same time you have that happening, you also have an off Broadway production that this Sgt. Pepper's movie was based on um, called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band on the Road. Okay, it was created by Tom O'Horgan who was the director of Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar, all the kind of hippie freak out musicals. So he puts together this 
what is the story of the Sgt. Pepper movie? The whole thing about Billy Shears is the star and Billy Shears in the production was played by uh, Ted Neely, who was the star of Jesus Christ Superstar. So so that's the background for this. And bizarrely, Sgt. Pepper in this uh, off-Broadway production was played by David Patrick Kelly, the guy who says, Warriors, come out and play that that character actor. So he was the lovable Sgt. Pepper. So. So clearly this was, okay, we're going to take that. We're going to do this monster soundtrack anchored by the Bee Gees. Yeah, the fucking um, Bee Gees, man. Like, oh, that, that now, was just like the weirdest thing. Well, now here's the thing. I'm going to, I and this might blow your mind, but I fucking love the Bee Gees. So and do I. And I got to say, but- I love their covers in this. When they do Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, they're f- harmonizing. They sound fucking amazing. I hate to say it. They even sound a little better than the Beatles. <laughs> and then they go, shears, shears, shears. And goddamn Peter Frampton comes up and is this turd in the punch bowl. Looks like Gollum to me, or he actually looked like, uh, you know, Trey Parker from South Park. He looks like an emaciated fetus version of Trey Parker, and and sings in his whiny voice. He looks like the the yes, sings like amazing that he was this sexy star of the time and on teenage girls' walls, and ruins every song. Like the Bee Gees will be completely kicking ass. God, when they do um, You Never Give Me Your Money late in the movie, it's so good. And then they're doing Golden Slumbers, and then he starts singing She Came In Through the Bathroom Window, and I Want to Puke. Like, so so apparently Peter Frampton was forced on them because he was the big star. They did not like him. They didn't get along. I, I don't you know, blame so him, though. They look, Every time he no. turns up, they have this look like, why, why are you here? Why and I was just here? like, why is fucking Peter Frampton here? But the funniest thing for me is Paul Nichols. Do you guys know who Paul Nichols is, the actor? No. Right, no. he is the guy who plays... Uh, sorry, Paul Nicholas. He is the guy who plays the, the manager or the he's the cousin, he's the manager, the blonde, curly guy. Dougie Shears. Okay. Yeah, the Dougie st- Shears. Yeah, he's Dougie. the younger That's brother. Oh, oh, from... um, uh, He's in Tommy. He's in Ken Russell's Tommy. Yeah. He plays Cousin Kevin, the evil molester. And, Ke- yes. he, and he was also really, really famous here when I was a kid for this sitcom called Just Good Friends, um, uh, where okay. he and he his character, like he never outlived that character. That was it. As soon as he did Just Good Friends, he was that character. Right. Um, but he looks a bit like Peter Frampton. So I yeah. when when... Peter Frampton comes in. I thought, what the fuck's Peter Frampton coming in? And then it would flick to Paul Nicholas. And I'd just be like, oh, no, that's not Peter Frampton. That's Paul Nicholas. And then we'd go back to it and I'd go, oh, no, it is Peter Frampton. Like, what the fuck? And then I realised they were both in it. And I was just like, what is going on here? Why have they both been cast? The curly he, you blonde... You know, he's, he's good, though. Frampton no, he is, is so good. bad. And then, and then the girlfriend... Um, Strawberry Fields, his girlfriend, <laughs> yes. oh. which is so stupid that they named her Strawberry Fields and then have her sing her own song theme song, <laughs> Strawberry Fields Forever, is played by a woman named Sandy Farina. One of her only roles, 
who apparently was the big villain of the set. She got the nickname <laughs> 16 Takes Sandy because to, like anything she had, you had to do 16 takes. She's far better than Peter Frampton. And she's supposed to be like the worst actor of all time. And, and I mean, and she's not good, but she's far better. I, as a kid seeing this movie, I always thought she was Pam Dauber from the show Mork and Mindy over here. I always like conflated them in my head. She's very adorable and, and like not a good actress, but but I'm telling you, leagues above Peter <laughs> really, really takes this down. Uh, and the movie's directed by Michael Schultz, uh, a, a figure I find really fascinating. One of the only super successful black directors in uh, comedy directors in particular in Hollywood in the 70s. He directed a Richard Pryor movie, Bustin' Loose, that Mike and Pat Healy just talked about on this podcast. Uh, Which Way is Up with Richard Pryor, Crush Groove, the the early 80s, mid 80s hip hop movie, Car Wash, Cooley High, Last Dragon uh, and Scavenger Hunt, like another kind of hell's a poppin' all star cast comedy I was obsessed with as a kid. Um, so he's he's an interesting figure. So, I mean, I can't, can you imagine this set? The, no. the cast you just talked about, George Burns. Peter Frampton, the Bee Gees, all these rock stars, Alice Cooper. But also uh, Frankie Howard as well. Yeah. Who's like, (laughs) to anyone who doesn't know, he's just, he was like a British comedy legend who did weird films here, very, um, you know, but didn't really have an international appeal. And he's like one of the main villains in it. It's like, why have they got Frankie Howard in here? I guess to have something British. Yeah, like, everything else American. Yeah, I think he was supposed to be, you know, British. But that's the thing. As you say, this is Americanized, but all the villains in this film are Brits. Donald Pleasance and and, and, and that guy. Yeah. Poor Donald Pleasance. Him in his white cowboy hat and pink (laughs) shirt. Like, it's so embarrassing. There's so much cocaine just wafting (laughs) off the screen this entire film. And and I felt so fucking embarrassed. I don't know. No, no, no. Because I've seen Donald Pleasance in worse. The thing I love about Donald Pleasances. He starts off at Rada and doing Pinter, like the caretaker, and he's like this really heavyweight actor. And <laughs> um, somewhere in the 70s, he just starts not giving a shit about what he's in. Uh, but he gives everything the same conviction. And so he's like doing amicus horror films. And like by the 80s, he's turning up in these. Um, I just did a commentary actually for Sergio Martinos, this Italian director, this sure. batshit. Uh, late 80s, early 90s action film. And he's in that as this occultist who can t- who turns into a pig. Um, and sure. he was, and it's just like Donald, you don't give a shit, man. He was in those Dario Argento <laughs> films. Like, I, I love it though, because yeah. he just approaches everything as if he's in Pinta. Like he doesn't yeah, care. Yeah, no, he, he sells just... it. He sells it. Yeah, he throws himself right in. That's for sure. With the, it's like the... you said, the, the, the terrible costumes they make him wear and oh it's just oh my god (laughs) it feels like at at times that they're that it feels like they think they're making like pink floyd's the wall but they're really making xanadu (laughs) yes Uh, very except i love xanadu i thought about xanadu a lot watching this because weirdly xanadu is like this pretty kind of like sweet movie and this movie's weirdly kind of nasty kind of dark and leads to peter frampton attempting suicide at the (laughs) end and everybody's 
smoking dubs and being all 70s music industry well, it's it's a weirdly uh weirdly slightly mean-spirited movie but it also not just is... slightly it the climax where strawberry fields rolls and falls to her death off of that fucking <laughs> stage is one of the most disturbing things and out of left field twists that i've ever seen i mean there's yeah. fucking there's psycho there's what happens to 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 <laughs> william peterson at the end of to live and die in la and then there's what happens to strawberry fields in this movie <laughs> I mean, yes. that fucking shot. I mean, never mind that that's what happens, that like she dies, but the way it's filmed, that crazy <laughs> shot of that fucking dummy or whatever it is that falls and looks like it breaks its neck on the. I mean, that's crazy that that's in this movie. The and even crazier is, that the they try to solve is. that plot point with what's his name, Billy Preston, uh, well, blowing a fucking trumpet away. That was my favorite part of the movie. And that version of Get Back also kicks ass. It's so good. And he's, he's so awesome and he's wearing an awesome. White suit and yes, and he comes out and blows his magic trumpet and brings her back from the grave. And and, and I mean, we're skipping right to the end of the movie, but yeah, well. then leads to a hilarious, uh, unbelievably hilarious, um, uh, 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 almost we in a tribute world. to yeah. the Sergeant Pepper cover of all the legendary figures. But what could not be the lamest, just cheesiest '70s celebrities? <laughs> all Shana Na, Carol Channing, standing on the steps doing a reprise of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, that is hilarious and yeah truly are, are, is Shauna Na the only connection between this movie and Woodstock or are there more Woodstock figures somewhere in here oh my god are there I I think that's it who who else I mean no I think that's it I think there you yeah, go I think that's the whole casting is almost oh wait no George Burns George Burns performed at Woodstock that's right he came <laughs> so out with a ukulele and, and did ain't misbehaving remember the whole casting <laughs> is almost like they just picked up some culture magazine and just stuck pins in it and I think that is the great thing about it if you don't know what's coming is yes. you know the Steve Martin turns up and you're like, wow, you know Steve Martin but yeah. then in the next scene it's like fucking Alice Cooper Who's amazing? I love the Alice that's Cooper. A scene, that's that's sequence, like a really yeah. strange sequence. He's like a cult leader, yeah. and he's like brainwashing these people. It's just like people moaning, and it's like the apocalypse. And you're like, "Oh, that's cool." And then like fucking Earth, Wind, and Fire come on. Dude. Oh, just like, their song rocks. Like- that seems great. <laughs> oh my god, that's a great. I mean that that is another cover that I hate to say. Like oh, I think this is better than the Beatles <laughs> song, but but um but all I can think when I saw. Alice Cooper sequence which is a weird like he's a weird con man money obsessed he does because the Beatles song because and does this uh, creepy deliberately creepy brainwashing uh, cult leader money cult leader guy but all I could think watching it is how he talks about how he was blackout drunk 24 hours a day for everything in this period. So, so that's all I could think watching it is he is blackout drunk right now. Like, he's, getting him me, to do this. he's giving me huge Frank Zappa vibes. In this yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Maybe was even parodying him. It's, it's hard to say. He is it's, it's funny. Frank Zappa. I thought about Zappa watching this because Zappa had a, I saw his, my dad also liked Zappa and 
as a kid, I was always disturbed that Zappa psychotically hated Peter Frampton and did numerous <laughs> songs and and did a long onstage bit. I always remember seeing this concert footage where he did a long onstage bit when Peter Frampton released an album called I'm In You. His, mm-hmm. his follow-up to his famous live album was I'm In You. And Zappa did a long bit about can you imagine being a groupie? Peter Frampton laying on top of you, putting his penis inside. Like I saw this as a kid. And then coming in and leaning into your ear and going, I'm in you. I'm in you. And and it chilled me. And now I see watching this like, oh, okay, I get why he hated Frampton. I, I see what was going on, you know, but... Also, but, let's not let's not forget those two fucking robots. And yes, they're, terrible they're, with Frankie Howard. Yes, the, and they're terrible. Neil Young trans version of "She's Leaving Home," which <laughs> yes. is crazy enough. <laughs> terrible choice. But then it Daft then punk. Then Early it gets Daft yeah. Punk. But then it gets even schmaltzier, and then the the visuals are so literal. It, it ruins that fucking song. Like, yes, you're right. The, some of the BG stuff is great in this, but "She's Leaving yes. Home" I find repulsive. Ter- and, and, I, and what do they sing when they give uh, Frankie Howard the massage? Remember? Th- yeah. They, oh, it's uh, um, mean, mean Mr. Mustard. Mean Mr. Mustard. That's yeah. it. Yeah, that's terrible, too. <laughs> it, it's, you know, it, it, there's so many things that you can look at with this film. But I think one of the things that it feels to me like it's like, they, you know, George Martin is involved in this. And it feels like this was George Martin's opportunity to try out all the ideas that he pitched at the Beatles for these songs that they said, fuck no. We're not doing <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's probably true. Until, like I said, until like a good band will come in like Earth, Wind and Fire, who are clearly like, just yeah. like, get out of the way. Just let us do this. Or and, honestly, even Aerosmith come off OK. Oh, they're awesome. Oh, yeah. my God. But when they, Aerosmith they came on, because I was messaging Beth, and I so wanted to message Mike through this. Just yeah, so... You know, I, I'm, he introduced me to Wes. But Mike would have just said, save it for the show. show. Save it yeah, for the show. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he introduced me to Wes Popper last year, which I'd never seen for my sins. Um, and then we all got together for 70s films, saw in the 70s, and we did Wes Popper and The Jerk. And The, and the Jerk, yeah. And The Jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just texting all the way through that. And this, I just really wanted to just be like, Peter fucking Frampton, like, what the... F-? When Aerosmith come on... <laughs> I messaged Ben. He was like, oh, wait till the third act. Well, it's not really a third act, but we're, you know, and fucking, he goes, there's a twist. And it's like, fucking Aerosmith have arrived now. And they're like weird sort of sex offenders. They've got that strawberry yeah. fields on the, like, on the bondage rack and he's feeling yeah. her tits before she died. And it's just like, <laughs> what the, this is just totally shat the bed now. I did not know Mike was such a huge Aerosmith fan. We that was a conversation he and I had literally like a week before he died. We were I like we were talking about seventies rock we were into at the time, and 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 I I had no idea he was so obsessed with Aerosmith. So that was fun to learn and Mike, fun to see them after that. Mike left behind so many gifts for us and for the rest of the world if they chose to to take advantage of them. And one of them that I have just discovered after his death is all of these playlists that he made on Spotify. Oh, wow. That are so fucking great. And and I'm I'm not a Spotify guy, but I subscribe just so I can listen to all these playlists uninterrupted. He did a Christmas playlist this year. You know, I think he just did it like maybe in the month before he died that 
has so many great Christmas songs that I've never heard before, like rock, you know, Christmas songs and, and disco Christmas songs, but, but tons of, you know, he, he has a teen movie hell, uh, playlist, which is like four hours of oh, movies from awesome. those teen movies, but tons of other great, just like whatever he was listening to on a particular year. Um, are those public? Like, yes. Is that something? Yes. What, what are they under? Are they under Mike McPadden? Mike McPadden. Great. Yeah. That's great. So people can go listen to those. That's yeah. awesome. That's great. Yeah, so so this movie basically is this ridiculous, incredibly thin plot excuse for a jukebox musical like like Abbas Mama Mia or whatever of of not just Sgt. Pepper songs, but also songs from Abbey Road. And um, and it's that the, the there was a real Sgt. Pepper. They played they were a band that played oompa music in world war two not world war one and brought ba- brought joy and peace to the battlefield and uh now today they're carried on through peter frampton and and the bgs and billy and preston George- and billy preston yes <laughs> who you know who was the fifth beatle so you know he yeah and um and george burns narrates it and and i do love george burns so it was fun to fun to see him um, but, uh, but, you know, but then they, they leave Heartland USA and Peter Frampton leaves behind his nice, sweet, pure girlfriend, Strawberry Fields, who also, uh, apparently Olivia Newton-John was offered that part and ended up turning it down and did Robert mm. Stigwood's Grease instead, which mm. was a good choice. Uh, yeah. the other person I thought it was interesting to see was, um, Lucy, uh, was, um, who does the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds number was offered to Donna Summer, which would have kicked at. I would have loved that because I love Donna Summer. And I and I, I Mike and I saw Thank God It's Friday together, the uh, disco movie that she's in with Jeff Goldblum. And, yeah, you know, that would have been great. But um, but as so so uh sergeant <laughs> so the sergeant pepper band of the bgs and frampton go out to hollywood they leave behind sweet nice heartland usa he leaves behind his sweet girlfriend strawberry fields they land in la and get driven in a limo by lucy who's a super hot lady who instantly starts singing i want you and looking in the rearview <laughs> mirror at frampton how bad she wants him which and he's sitting there drooling with his mouth hanging open and as a kid i was always so creeped out like wait a minute she hits on him and then they just start like making out and they have sex on top of a big spinning record with the rso that label part essentially really reminded me of phantom and the paradise the big record yeah yes i mean it was really effective, which i know i love but, that film well, but it was always whole, there's a whole debaucherous sequence and dinner but it's the it's the tamest but it's the most PG rated. Yeah. So you don't even understand the, the concept of the, of what's supposed to be happening in the movie. Cause they're not, there's nothing all that crazy going on. You're not seeing people snort lines of Coke or anything. And you, and so it's like, well, what's, what's the big fucking deal? Yes, it's the it's the uh, Saved by the Bell version of the Boogie Nights. <laughs> well, we'll people see. are taking drugs the whole time. There's sex, but they are very so... casually just smoking yeah, pot the whole like, time. I, yes, I, I in a PG in my movie. Is Donald Pleasant smoking a spliff? Yes. And yes, he yes. was. And it, but like Ben said, you don't really notice it because it's so weirdly. I don't know. There's something saccharine it's or the tame 70s. about it. Yeah, and it's just like, yeah. what the hell is this? 
You know, you wouldn't casually just getting stoned, having sex everywhere. People are being killed. They're committing suicide. But somehow you just feel (laughs) like you're in this really sick... Like I said, Little Abner, the musical. You feel like you're in that. Yeah, it reminded me of The Muppet Show. Yeah, it reminded me of The Muppet Show, kind of. Or The Muppet Movie, even, which came out at the same time. And, And this whole thing was in terms of... It was Robert Stigwood. He was the... You know, who also did Grease and legendary producer, legendary 70s producer who had his record label RSO Records and RSO Records to me was a big part of my childhood. Their rec, their record, uh, their albums had a logo of a, a cow, a red cow with RSO printed on the side. And they put out things like the Grease soundtrack, the Empire Strikes Back soundtrack, the Disco Duck album. So so that's a very iconic image to me. And this this whole movie, Janet Maslin of The New York Times said it was not a movie. She said it was a business deal set to music. (laughs) And it it is. It's just just a way to sell the albums. But the thing I do find interesting is the evil sinister record label in L.A. is BD Records. The bad guy is BD. And and it's a their logo is a red pig. That's a parody of the RSO label. And they and they do a whole sequence of watching the Sgt. Pepper album get manufactured. So a lot like we were talking about the Beatles movie being this or the Magical Mystery Tour being this weird kind of piss take. This is also this meta commentary on itself (laughs) as a piece of garbage (laughs) product. And they even and, and it has that bad 70s variety show feel. And they even stop in the middle for a cheesy TV variety special called like the Sergeant Pepper Hour with their special guests. <laughs> yeah. So it is there. There is, I have to say, slightly more of a brain behind this. In some ways, the movie, I hate to admit it, reminded me of in the cheesiest way is the Sex Pistols Great Rock and Roll Swindle. Like it is <laughs> yeah. basically telling you we are fucking you over. Yeah. We got your money. We we are the bad guys and making fun of itself for doing that. And I did there's and there was one one thing that actually did make me laugh was when they land, they they have their wild party. Uh Peter Frampton gets laid on a spinning record and then they go to a title screen that said, um, I think it said something like then became, then began their, Oh, they begin their difficult one week climb to the top of success, which I thought was a funny gag, but, but clearly there is some satire going on here, but it's just, everyone is so coked out. And, uh, (laughs) Oh, and in that little variety special, I do have to say another great BG cover. One of the ones that Frampton does not ruin is nowhere man, which again, their harmonies are so perfect for that. And polythene Pam, I think were my favorites that, that have no Frampton. And and this soundtrack is not like on Spotify or I, I had a hard time digging mm. it up. I had to listen to it on YouTube, unfortunately. Well, poor yeah. poor Frankie Howard. That was his one thing in Inter- <laughs> and that killed it for him. He was like the yeah. casualty. Did it really? Did this end his? Well, career? no, no, not in British comedy. But he was in some films here, and you know he had a bit. But he gets to go to America in this big film. This was his with, shot. You know, yeah. and he's not in anything else sort of big after that. He just goes back to doing what he was doing it's like he was the casualty for they used him and yeah. tossed you, him aside I'm, did you read his funny quote no his funny quote about the movie he said the movie was like saturday night fever without the fever yeah that's his, <laughs> that's his description yeah. <laughs> that was great it's um, he apparently did a tv special with the Bee Gees in 1968 
called Frankie Howard Meets the Bee Gees. I mean, he was great. Frankie Howard was great. He's just this really camp, you know... Or outwardly gay at a time when you no shouldn't kidding. have been. Um, just w- was wonderful. that his persona? Was that, he? Uh, no, do you I know think Paul he... Lind? Do you know who Paul Lind is over here in the in the no. U.S.? But Paul Lind was a 1960s. He was in movies, but mostly TV, and he became kind of popular as a game show uh, contestant. Funny, cause, but he he was when you say camp, he was that. 60s very gay but you're but it wasn't contextualized as yeah. gay he's but the, that was the humor same he was sort of thing with, with okay yes, with it is very Howard. similar Cat, we had it, he was um, the... charles autry kenneth williams but obviously okay. it was completely illegal here until the late 60s and so that was his kind of so he was, was transgressive in his way even though he gets right. lumped in with the the more sort of Benny Hill stuff and the more family stuff. Some of the stuff he did was quite, you know, some of the double entendres and, you know. So it's nice to see him, but it was just like, why is he in this? Because he's not adding yeah. anything to it. And he's not really playing Frankie Howard either. No. He's, no. But nobody no, is. No, nobody is. Everyone's wasted in this film other than the Bee Gees getting to sing beautiful versions of, those, of those songs. But it is. Yeah. But he's also part of what fascinates me and, and Mike and I talked about this a little bit on our show from time to time is that even in the, even in the, in the late 70s like we're watching now it was okay to have older people in your movies that you were, you know, trying to make as hip and as fresh and appeal to the youth market as much as you could. It was still okay to have George Burns in those movies and Donald Pleasance and, and all those other people. And even, you know, Heartland reminds me of nothing more than it does a retirement community. You know, it's a very strange <laughs> yeah. sort of gated, you know, everyone seems like they're like 80 years old in Heartland and such a, str- it's a th- you know, if they were making this movie now, none of those people would, none of those older actors would be in this movie. That would not be the location. Uh, it's so it's it's interesting to like, look at how, how much more inclusive uh, movies aimed at kids were back in those days. It's weird you bring that up because there is that really weird when Sergeant Pepper's come back for their their tribute tour or whatever, and it shows the resident because everyone's supposed to be in debauchery. They've lost the heartlands. Everyone's right. like it's gone to sin. There's this weird sort of middle class older couple with this nice garden who are supposed <laughs> to be. Living. It's like these are the residents. What are they doing exactly? Like why have they turned yeah. to debauchery? That they, they still look like. Like a sort of, you know, very middle class night, and their gardens just got a bit of rubbish in it. That, <laughs> that really scene weird. reminded me so much of when the hobbits come back to the Shire at the end of the Lord of the Rings. Um, but you know, Mike and I had this shared obsession with um, this shared obsession that we talked about on this podcast a lot about like 1970s culture in general, but particularly how the ninth people in the seventies were obsessed in a retro way with the forties, with Mm -hmm. the forties, with the twenties, like how a lot of this retro and the opening of this film is this incredible encapsulation of it. You go from seeing Sergeant Pepper's band in world war one to the depression era and hearing the Sergeant Pepper's theme done depressionary style to the forties, 
you know, it's this like big band version. It's this really good encapsulation that. But didn't you think it was weird? Here's the first indication where I went. This movie is not a professionally made film. (laughs) They go to the 1940s and it's this Andrews sister style trio of women in wax outfits all snapping their fingers. And it's like a big band. And and they're at the mic. They're all leaning in and the narration's going and the song he's and they never sing and then they just stop and everybody claps i didn't know i was like that. the fuck just, why are they not singing we just watched them just stand there and snap their fingers for a minute and a half and then people clap and i was like this is this is not a well and it you know it, it begs the question why aren't people allowed to talk in this movie at all this whole movie <laughs> George Burns. right i i don't under, i don't remember the name it's of the, the guy who, thing. who wrote this fucking thing but it was like i know he has said he never wrote anything else he was like a He's a rock critic or somebody that Robert Stigwood got to like put this thing together, but he yeah he kept he he, he claims that he was thinking of it as like an old MGM musical, but it's not like any MGM <laughs> musical that I remember right. seeing. It's a bunch of right. it's like a Mad Libs version of the Beatles songs. You know, he strung them all together, but he doesn't even come close to making a coherent story out of the lyrics of any of those songs. Uh, or so I don't explain anything. It yeah. just goes from less have Steve Martin doing Little Shop of Horrors before Little Shop of Horrors. Right. Let's just get, yeah, yeah. what can you do, Steve? Um, you know, what do you yeah. want to be? I'll just do this. <laughs> Let's have Alice Cooper on his Frank Zappa doing a weird little voice in a thing with Bray. You know, that, and it's like, what is this? There's no story. And then occasionally George Burns will come in and just give you a bit of context. Oh, yeah. And then, <laughs> they, uh, and then they, this the happens. <laughs> And then, and then there, there, there was a silver hammer, you know. And I don't, can't remember what was the name of that guy that owned it. Oh yeah, Maxwell. And then they do. I, I would like, love what to. Script? There's no script. No, there's no script. I would love to <laughs> no. have heard the conversation that Steve Martin had with the producers of Little Shop of Horrors, where they said, "Hey, will you do this <laughs> thing that you did in Sergeant Pepper in our movie?" And Steve Martin thinking, "Oh yeah, okay, I'll do that again." It's so, it's so <laughs> weird to me that he, that he revisited the scene of that crime and did it all over again in, in Little Shop of Horrors. Although Little Shop you know, of Horrors has got a storyline though. He's, yeah. He's a purpose. A bit. Why have they sure. got the instruments? Why? 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 If they're this huge band, why can't they buy more instruments? I didn't get that. <laughs> they've got to collect the instruments and they've just given them Well, there's to magical Addis instruments. Cuba. They have a yeah, magic Yeah, but, but, but why? I don't why? Know. Why, would a, why would a doctor want them? And so, like, Why? Uh, right, an ex real estate agent too is the uh, is the. Oh other. yeah, an ex real estate. No, but it's just so random. Yeah, so you completely know, random. I gotta say, this is the kind of thing I watch. Like, as as someone who works in the entertainment industry and Hollywood shit, like I when I watch this movie, I get so jealous. Like. In the 70s, you could just make yeah. a complete piece of shit. You could get every cool person to show up. You could get high and drunk all day on the set, turn out total garbage, and everybody went, yeah, we'll put that out. And, yeah. you know, and I, was, I was telling... <laughs> yes, I was saying to Ben before he got on, like, working this... I've been working this project forever that just got killed. And it's like, in nineteen in the 1970s, it would, like I said, it would have been, ah, it doesn't matter, just put it out. Everybody's drunk, everyone's <laughs> high. There's nothing else to do. There's there's three channels on TV. Just stick it in there. They will just sit there. And And, you know, it's funny. 
for all Mike complain about Star Wars and Marvel ruining things, the Star Wars is it really is responsible for making Hollywood more professional, basically. <laughs> like before that, people were just they were just animals, just like whatever, yeah. wandering in front of the camera. You, know, you say, why did do, why does no one speak? Because you'd have to get Steven Tyler of Aerosmith to say a sentence. That's why. <laughs> If he yeah. sings, you know, you can have him in your movie. You, you know, yeah. like just just get George Burns to talk. You know, yeah. oh god, yeah. So yes, it's terrible and amazing, and uh, and I really, I I mean, I gotta say, really enjoyed every minute of it. Like, like even when I was just utterly cringing. Yeah, and, I, uh, I wouldn't know what to rate it. So I I I'd I recommend know. it to people. I would. I would. I'd recommend it it to people. I I have a list of bad movie musicals that this one made me long for. Um, Okay. I would rather watch Spice World. Oh, good one. That is harsh. Another Mike McPadden favorite. A huge. Yeah, terrible, terrible. God, did he love the Spice Girls? Everyone says I love you. The Woody Allen fucking. Never actually saw it. Never Um, saw it. At Long Last Love, the Peter Bogdanovich thing. God, my, Mike I and I, th- we wanted, we've been talking about that movie all year, like how bad we both wanted to see that. And it was, it's hard to find. So, yeah. yeah. Um, one from the Heart, the Francis Ford sure. Coppola. Yeah. Uh, the, the one movie that I don't long for watching this movie is, and, and, I feel like we need to bring this up on this thing is across the universe, the much more recent attempt oh, to do the yep. same fucking thing yeah. with Beatles songs, which is which isn't even, which really is not that different from this. No, and I think it's worse. It's way worse because <laughs> yeah, it doesn't arguably. have the BGs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it but it's it's the same thing. I mean, they just did this again. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. But the I, dumbest song use, I just I have to say it one more time how dumb it is that Strawberry Fields sings to Frampton, <laughs> Strawberry Fields Forever. Can you imagine in any other musical, like in Singing in the Rain, if Debbie Reynolds had sung to Gene Kelly, like, Debbie Reynolds <laughs> is here, Debbie Reynolds hanging around. Like, it's the dumbest thing. Me forever. Me, Strawberry Fields. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, this, the other thing this movie makes me think about is that it really feels like a, like a, like a first attempt and a prep at getting the Beatles into a Las Vegas kind of stage show well, setting, which they ended had, uh, up doing with Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. And I actually think that, that well, that's true. That that's maybe the most successful thing. Yeah. Well, Beatlemania, sure. Uh, Beatlemania was this time, right? Yeah. Like maybe it was like a year after this or yeah. maybe it was the exact same time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I need to ask my uh, dad what he thinks of this because I would imagine he has very angry sure thoughts it. about I'm this. I'm sure and he, he hates fucking it. hates the Bee Gees, which I love the Bee Gees. Oh, like, God, I love the so Bee Gees. Good. My dad was they're into so punk when the Bee Gees were at their height, so he was into the Clash well, and the Sex Pistols. He he would have no Bee Gees talk. Ha- but I have, have to ask read, uh, him, and if he hasn't seen it, I'm going to send him a copy because I want his reactions to it. Have you ever read Alice Cooper's great quotes about the Bee Gees, his take on them in the 70s? Like, you know, Alice Cooper was Mr. Hard Rock, Wild Man, you know, and he said the Bee Gees came out. He heard the Saturday Night Fever album and he and all his friends and he had to say to them like, fucking disco. I hate the fucking overproduced <laughs> Bee Gees. And then he would just go home and play the record and go, oh, my God, it's a masterpiece. This is the great. 
greatest music ever. Like he was this closet, like, I love it. I'm obsessed with the Bee Gees, you, you know? Oh man. But that's, a, I have to say that's a recent, it's only been in the past like five years that I've gotten into them. And, uh, God, some of their albums are just amazing. So yeah, God, I want a special edition of this where Peter Frampton is CG out. <laughs> and and d- whenever he sings, there's just no voice. It's just the track. There's just no one singing. <laughs> Do you need anybody? Yeah. And then silence. He is the Jar Jar Banks of this anybody? movie. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yes, uh, totally. Bring it back to Mike. He, he is like Jar Jar. He is like Jar Jar. He kind of looks like him even. Uh, I hope he never hears this. God forbid. I'm sure he's a wonderful person. Mm-hmm. I feel terrible yeah. saying these things about him. Uh, well, there's Sergeant Peppers. Anything else on this uh, this masterpiece? This this buttholes <laughs> Beatles uh, DNA oh. cross section. Yes, a special shout out to whoever figured out what tears should look like on Peter Frampton's face. <laughs> Which, to, what they came up with is dump a whole bucket of water on him so there isn't a single millimeter of space on his face that doesn't have some water on it. I, I heard that the Bee Gees had pissed in his face for ruining their songs, and they, the camera just happened to catch that. That was one of their bullying moments. We have to put up with this fucking guy. Yeah. Uh, well, this has been uh, delightful and uh, would have been much 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 more fun with mike here so god damn it mike why'd you have to go away like that we miss you we love you and um and uh and and this is this is all the only reason any of us got up the energy to do this was uh because mike wanted us to and watch these butt butthole butthole butt beetle film (laughs) <laughs> watch these butthole movies starring that is kind of the pronunciation is it the buttholes yeah. Mike used to do this uh, thing on social media all the time when somebody died that he admired and he would say him I'll miss or her I'll miss and yes. uh, I haven't been able to bring myself to do that for him on social media but that and then he would always he would always usually to comic effect if if there was something particularly gross or something he would say now i'm hungry or now i'm laughing um and uh i also wanted to say like now i'm crying which uh, i did a oh, lot God. after oh after i've been that. so depressed it's been a, a three-week boxing day for me it's been nothing <laughs> yeah. but tr- believe me like uh yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna miss that guy a lot, and it's and it's the one one nice solace has been seeing how much other people felt the same way uh, we did, and and getting to see that, and um, and it's been uh, such a joy uh, that Mike created for us, getting to connect with people through these yeah. podcasts, and I'm really glad we got to got to do it with you guys. Uh, really, really fantastic. Even if he left us with Peter Frampton, God, <laughs> I, you know. <laughs> Like I said, the the easy way out, Mike took. Not seeing this. Uh, all right. All right. Well, uh, uh, thanks everybody, Mike. We miss you. We love you. And uh, and Ben, cat. Uh, let's all say together, crack or get off the pot. Okay. This is crack pot cinema. Crack, crack or get or off get the get off the, the pot. pot. <laughs> <laughs> I'll re- I'll sing that. Everybody. Up <laughs> Thanks everybody. Sorry, I was trying to I was getting a bit of a delay and then it was like, oh god, we're sinking this up, are we? <laughs> it was early morning yesterday. I was up before the dawn. 
But I must be moving on Like a king without a castle Like a queen without a throne I'm an early morning lover And I must be moving on What you say is the undisputed truth, but I have to have things my own way to keep me in my youth. Like a ship without an anchor, like a slave without a chain, just a thought of those sweet ladies as I shiver through my veins. Some it's just as well 